Hello and welcome to the TetraCast. I'm your host, Brian Vitali, and joining me today, we've got the full regular crew. I've got James Galizio. Hey, folks. I've got Josh Torres. Oh, I'm part of the regular crew now? Sweet. I've been promoted. Yes. Uh, we've got Adam Vitali. Hey, guys. We've got George Foster. Hello, everyone. So we are wrapping up January. Hopefully this year has been going better compared to previous years. Uh, I can't believe we're already looking February square in the eye. So exciting things ahead. And we've got a lot to talk about. All those things that were kind of like wrapped up in embargo tape and, uh, you know, under the covers and not able to be revealed just yet. Now, a lot of it we can talk about now. So that'll be a major focus of this podcast. We've got a bunch of reviews, a couple features, some news bits, not not a lot on that specific regard. Uh, also, if you are listening to us on YouTube, this is the plan is, at least as of recording, is that this will be the first podcast in like six years to go up on YouTube. We just figured, hey, why not? We're already putting uh, pushing the TetraCast over to Spotify and Google Podcasts. And we used to be on YouTube. So why not go back there again? Though yeah, I if you're listening to this on YouTube, like let, let us know in the comments as well. What do you think? Uh, give us feedback on what, what do you think we should do better or if we're doing great. You know, just uh, let us know. We'll, we'll read the comments for sure. And uh, it's kind of one of those things where when the last time the Tetracast was on YouTube, I don't think there's any overlap between those contributors and the five of us here. So it's kind of like the ship of Theseus or whatever it's called, where it's like, if you replace all the parts, <laughs> is it still the same podcast? Uh, maybe, maybe not. I'm all over that. Uh, of course, if you're listening to us through Spotify or Google Podcasts or whatever, uh, feel free to leave us comments and thumbs up or thumbs down there. Whatever you feel, be honest. Uh, so without yeah, further ado. We read, we read everything. We read everything, for sure. Mm-hmm. And without further ado, I guess we'll just kind of be going, uh, this will be a little bit uh, of a combo start where we'll be talking about games we've been playing, which will overlap with some features that have been written for the site, obviously, because uh, we've got a bunch. I've, I've got listed here four different reviews that have gone up, uh, three of them pretty major. And I guess I'll just start up in the order that they, uh, I, I want to say that the order that they are published, but I actually don't know what the order is. Let's see, it looks like the first one that went up was James's review on Atelier Ryza 2, Lost Legends, and the Secret Fairy. So this is the game that you've been uh, poking away at. For, you got this game pretty early, so uh, just go ahead and, I don't know, take it away. I don't think we actually got it, well, the proper review copy that early, as far as things are con- like concerned. Uh, we did get a copy very early on for like the preview we pushed out that Colin did. Um, a couple of months back, I want to say. And that actually did end up uh, transferring to a full copy as well. But um, anyways. Yeah, well, there's always that weird dichotomy, like preview copy versus review copy. <laughs> when the, well, when it's, it's only really... By arbitrary dates. Well, yeah, that's only really been a thing that's really started to crop up in a larger way, like in the last couple of, like, months or year i'd say because of the pandemic because normally if you were going to do a preview like for example <laughs> a year ago i did previews for a couple of games at nas america's hq before the pandemic really started and usually that's how you'd like have preview like um articles go up is that the company would invite you to their headquarters or someplace and there would either be a press event where you just 
play some games and that's it. So a bit different. And now it's being held through either here's just a code, have fun, or here's a preview event in something like <clears throat> on Discord or something else where they'll like stream some footage over to you and do it hands off. So lots of uh, lots of learning processes over the last year about other potential avenues to do these sorts of things. Yeah. Anyways, though, so I wanted to talk about it last week, but obviously I was under embargo. Uh, I really enjoyed Ryza 2. Um, it's kind of funny, because uh, if you had told me last year that I was going to get into the Atelier franchise, I probably wouldn't have believed you, but somehow that kind of just happened. Because I played Atelier Aisha, I got through most of Eskin Logi, I played Rise of One, now I've played Rise of Two. It's, um, yeah. I feel like, and I kind of said this in my review, that Rise of Two is... It's so impressive for how long Gus actually had to work on it because it only ba- they basically only had a single year of development after Rise of One, which is insane considering that first off, Rise of Two is longer than Rise of One. Obviously, there's some reused assets which um, Gus has always done for like follow-up titles in the Atelier franchise and whatnot, but still really impressive like and the, the the one year they had was like the year <laughs> yeah the pandemic and all that um the number of upgrades not just to the like just so many different things that they tweaked that are really surprising considering how little time they had like rise of one didn't really have any proper dungeons well and atelier doesn't usually have dungeons in the first place but they decided, okay, we're going to... The big deal with this one is there's going to be these ruins or basically dungeons, and there's going to be a whole system for, like, progressing through them, and there's this really fascinating, like, memory fragments and literally piecing together the lore and history of these ancient civilizations and the backstory for the Rise of the World. It's fascinating. Okay, really, so, really fascinating. Uh, yeah, so, so to someone who hasn't really, you know, I don't really mm-hmm. keep the Atalia games all that much. Like, it played... Verona, the Tori, some of the very older ones, like even as far far back as Marie, um, and you know the Atali Iris and all that stuff. Like I, I played a few of them here and there, and then uh, like Rise of Two is also a big deal because it's been like it's the first like I think direct sequel to an Atali game holding the same protagonist like in quite yeah. a while I think right. And then uh, how- I feel. I want to. I actually read that even though there was like Iris one, two, three, they still had different protagonists. I yeah, think, so. yeah, they did. So, and like, so how how far uh, along is this from like the the previous one? Like, how many months or years passed? Three passed? years later, okay. and I actually really like um, that they took a chance to have the same protagonist, mainly the same cast this time around. Because, I mean, Rise of One story and characters were were fine, but I feel like what they've done in Rise of Two with actually showing how they've grown and how they're much more mature and like the whole adventure this time around isn't just, oh, we're kids, we want to go on an adventure. And it's more we're we're trying to figure out what we want to do in in life and we're focusing on it. And it's like it, it's I still think, not a deep story, but it's like more mature. I think it's that's like where I'm a lot step closer. Of yeah, yeah, because I I I got maybe fifteen twenty hours into Rise of One, and I just eventually fell off because a lot of it was just like, it it felt like it wasn't really going anywhere in terms of like focus. It was just like, yeah, we're just going on adventures, going 
away from like the place we live and sometimes you know here and there it's, it kind of felt like too slow and, yeah exactly it was like kind of meandering a bit so that's kind of where i fell off but i'm hearing a lot of really good things do, do i have to uh finish rise of one or like push myself well, through that i get the most if you're in like 15 hours in rise of one i'd say push yourself through it because the very end of rise of one has a bit more story it's not amazing but it's something and i do feel like you do get more out of rise of two if you finish rise of one at least um but yeah it's like for example like each of the party members like even just looking at tau for example like he was like a nerdy kid super super tiny in the first game and it was just like that one archetype of like the bookworm and he's still a bookworm but like in three years he's more confident after the adventure and he shows it He's grown up, like, literally, so he's not a scrawny little kid anymore. He's got a bit of suave attitude to him in combat that's really kind of cool to see. And then there's also stuff like pretty much all the other characters that return. There's just slight changes to them, and it's nice because the baseline is, it's not a reset. There has been development after Rise of One that we haven't that you don't see, but makes sense. Mm-hmm. And part of the story and like the character like moments are the fact that it's been three years and it's like, man, we've really changed in three years. Being adult is kind of hard. Yeah, I do. I do like games that allow events to take place off screen, like us as the witness to this story aren't beholden to see everything absolutely anything of consequence so in that three-year gap it does that happen where there are certain like key moments that are reflected on that happen between the two games uh yes for at least one of the characters there's something like that um and i know not everyone has that mindset but i just i i really enjoy that because to me it just makes the world feel appropriately large where otherwise if everything of any consequence appears on stage for our eyes to witness that makes the world just feel small. And like the only things that matter are the things that we have direct control over. And I, I like you, I like it when games allow that to happen where it's like, here are some, like, like this is going to sound really corny, but like in real life, sometimes you got to piece together things and conversations and uh, events that you weren't present for or whatever. Yeah. It's, gotta... it's more like the game is portraying a window into the world rather than like the world in its entirety is yes. on display. Yeah, and that's like and that ties really into what I really like about the game, which is the ruin system. Like the dungeon them- dungeons themselves are interesting enough. I feel like they have good layouts. They look fantastic, which is one thing that I really stressed on in my review. But okay, so I'll just talk about the dungeons for a bit. The number one thing I love about them is the way that the alchemy system is actually tied into them in the sense that <clears throat> so Whenever you first get into a ruin, you have like five objectives that you can complete in order to eventually unlock the um, compass that lets you find memory fragments throughout the dungeon. And it's neat because it, on paper, it sounds like padding because it's like you're exploring the dungeon, then you unlock these memory fragments and you have to search for them throughout the dungeon again. But the fact that once you get to them, sometimes they have like, ghosts of people from the past and dialogue and you actually have some more that you can pick up on and usually where they're placed 
there's actual lore about the section of the ruin that you found them in, and just looking around gives you a little bit of information too. Um, that's really cool. But so, like I said in my review, in order to progress through each um, through the game, you have to um, piece together at least one subject of information in each ruin. And that's the one that has a gold border. And if you do that, you get a synthesis uh, recipe, which allows you to make something to continue on in the dungeon. And the interesting thing about those is that once you synthesize them and use them, the dungeons change to a certain extent. Some more than others, but all of them change. Like the very first dungeon that you use this in, there's like all these bells in the background and they start ringing and suddenly new types of enemies spawn and obviously you can move forward. There was one where you synthesize something, you place it down and then all of these trees that are maybe blocking like side paths or whatnot are now on fire. And some of them that were blocking the paths are just gone so you can progress further. Now the whole dungeon is like ablaze with these trees that are like on fire, which is really, really cool especially in, in these areas of the dungeon that are wide open. So you can just see the dotted blazing trees like all around you, which is a really interesting um, scope. Like, and, that's, and that's what I meant when I said that it feels really impressive they managed to get this done in only a year because this feels like, and I kind of said this like internally, like in the staff chat, this feels like more, well, well I mean, less of a derivative sequel than from Neo 1 to Neo 2 in, in a lot of ways. Hmm. So, just, so just production values, level of polish, that sort of thing, is that, is that basically kind of what you're getting at? Is just that it feels like this could have easily been uh, more... This could have easily been more obviously a year-long project or 18 months or whatever, but instead... Oh, definitely. It, yeah. And not to bury the lead a bit, but... So obviously James wrote a review for this up on the site and you scored it a nine, which is, you know, very, very, very high praise. So that is something where I guess right off the bat, as this is like one of the major January releases for the site, uh, I guess the Atelier games usually kind of always, at least from my perspective as an outsider, it's, it feels like they kind of have this sort of cap to them where they're, they're they're good but never great but here you're basically saying no this game could you could make an argument that it is great and you've scored it that way yep and uh yeah uh, i really want to talk about some more um not going to say exactly what it says but there's a real the story itself for rise of two which is just the base thing of hey we're exploring these ruins hey there's this fairy hey we're just exploring these ruins with this fairy. It, it's really simple. But there is some more to it that I hope that Arise of Three expands upon. Because if you look into and actually really delve into the um, ruins and the memory fragment stuff and like put everything together, there is an interesting backstory there. And there is like some interesting characters there that the game didn't need to have, but it really sells the idea of um, the whole system of looking back into the past and figuring out what happened. And I feel like it's a really interesting um, framing for Ryza's character arc because the whole thing that she was doing in between those three years is she started teaching kids on her island and she's been looking into the history of alchemy. So it just the framing of it as, instead of this just being an adventure for adventure's sake, but she's doing it for research, 
the way that the systems like come into play actually makes that feel like a legitimate aspect of her character and it really sells it a lot That's better than cool. yeah the, I, the, I can definitely see the appeal like there's like a there's like a neat archaeologic like angle to it but it's like but it's like the premise of it's like it's just basically like a teacher professor is going on these like adventures to like better teach her class essentially well sometimes well, maybe video not games exactly have that this. but something similar yeah I was going to say, sometimes video games have this sense of artifice or whatever, where you just kind of have to take it like, well, you have to you have to have a game at some point. So, of course, you're going to be going into dungeons and there'll probably be some sort of battles. And you just kind of have to be like, well, eventually you got to take your project and throw it into the framework of a video game. Where here, it sounds like they've gone a little bit of a step further and it's not so much artificial. It actually feels like this makes sense. This jives. This There is a, there's a, a through line here that works with the setting and the characters within it yeah and again read my review if you want my full thoughts it's uh, one of the longer reviews i've written um had a lot to say about it but my main takeaway was that rise of two was good enough in a year that i really really want to see what gus could do with a rise of three if they had a proper non-normal gust dev cycle if they had like three years or something like that because there's so many upgrades from Rise of 1 to Rise of 2, but there's just enough underneath the surface that you can tell if they had a little bit more budget, a little bit more time, they can make something really, really special. And I want to be able to see what Gus could do. I wonder what it's going to take, though, for them to get out of the normal Gus schedule. Like the, the, the yearly releases, sometimes releasing two to three games a year, you know, which is insane, but like. I wish they got more time too. I don't know what it yeah. would take to convince higher ups to like say, "Hey, let us give us more time to like develop and release these games." Well, unfortunately, it feels like um, uh, the quality of a game is not as often doesn't correlate at all with how many copies it sells. But yeah. typically, sequels, direct sequels like this, it'll be interesting to see how Rise of Two does because Rise of One, I feel like, was a, a a breath of fresh air and it sold really well relative to the rest of the games in the series how much of a drop-off is there going to be in rise of two and i know that sounds so cynical like who cares if it's a great game it's a great game but when we're talking about following up sequel how much dev time and budget and effort and you know uh logistically in that way how much they'll support a follow-up <laughs> that's going to matter a little bit more to the to those to the suits or whatever however you want to cynically put it so I'm interested to see how well it does. Hopefully it doesn't have much of a drop off at all. Hopefully the good word of mouth and it has reviewed very well, like across the board to my perspective. So hopefully this is worrying about nothing and hopefully it ends up being, you know, financially prudent for them to keep on this track and really knock it out of the park with a third game in a trilogy. I guess at this moment in time, like there's no newly announced or known revealed new Atelier games on the horizon, as far as I can tell. So yeah, I'm with you. Uh, we're, I, we're like in a weird like. This is maybe a little bit of a spoiler, but Rise of Three is definitely happening because there's some aspects in Rise of Two where it's basically outright telling you um, that a Rise of Three will happen. So. Oh yeah, I, I did that. Yeah, there's no doubt in my mind. Of course they would. Like Rise at the moment is like is a very popular protagonist, popular Atalia character. Like uh, a lot of people just love her in general. And oh, that's cool. That's cool to see. Um, I'm just trying to think, like, as far as we know, like, Gust has no new games 
coming after this right for right now obviously like they haven't announced anything you revealed anything right i don't think so i don't think so yeah. right yeah okay well yeah because i'm so used to always like Gus is always uh, really good at like, oh, we're we're teasing this, we're revealing this, or like there's a countdown site for something. You know? But right now, at this very moment in time, well, yeah, because we had that one year, like 2019, where they released three Atelier games, and of course they had Fairy Tale recently. And uh, going back further, oh, they had I forgot Fairy Tale. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> I forgot. But yeah, now that they've got nothing in queue that we're aware of, which of course is could be tied to pandemic and Corona, and who knows. Yeah. No, then, no, yeah. no events last year to hold that sort of thing where they would announce it. Maybe you could speculate all day and night. Yeah, I was, I was trying to remember. I was like, no, that that upcoming Eden Zero game. That's not them. That's actually Konami, I think. Just yep. the thing. yeah, huh? Any other final thoughts on Rise of Two? Um, it's a very good video game, and if you haven't, well, okay. So I feel like. It's a shame that Rise of Two is a direct sequel in one way, and that's because it feels structured more like a traditional JRPG, which I feel like a lot of people that maybe aren't already into Atelier will jive with a lot more than the previous games. But that doesn't help matters when Rise of One is still kind of, it's not necessary, but like highly recommended to play first. Yeah, <laughs> so I, I, you know, yeah like I, I think just the, all the good bird of mouth about this game, like, I'm definitely more motivated now to get Atalia Rise of, Rise of One done, and then I because I, I think I think I would I would like this game a lot from what people have told me, both you and other friends who are playing it. Another review that went up this month was actually a bit of a late one, but that's something that we've always kind of been a hundred percent fine with. Sometimes just having a different sort of reviewing environment that you're not beholden to an embargo and you can really like stew with your thoughts and things like that. Um, I'm basically just giving, covering my butt for all the late reviews that I've written. But we also got one from uh, George this month where he wrote up a review, a review for Immortals Phoenix Rising. So this came out in December of last year, uh, but it was just kind of at the time where we were doing our end of the year things. We weren't 100% sure how RPG this was or how much we wanted to cover it. But we we kind of went into the start of 2021. Uh, George had a few, you know, the inclination and a gap in his schedule to go ahead and cover it for us. So he put up a review for uh, Immortals. So George, how do we feel about this this Zelda like from Ubisoft? Uh, it's awesome. Yeah, I'm I'm really really impressed with it. Uh, I feel I feel like I've defended it a little bit over the past couple of podcasts we've done. Um, but then when I when I finally like properly finished it. I just I, like weirdly I couldn't stop playing. You, you guys know I talk about it all the time that I don't really put much time into like games. Like I won't go okay sixty hours into this, sixty hours into that. I'll usually finish to the credits and then like I've usually made up my mind about it, or at least I've like I've I've had my fill. Uh, but with Immortals, I don't know what it was. I I just kept playing. Like I just kept trying to find the loot. I kept trying to beat all the like legendary bosses. Like, it's, it's just a ton of fun. Um, and yeah, th- this I think this is my first ever late review and i completely agree with you guys like it, it was it's so much better to write a review when you're not like under a pressure at all like I, I i finished immortals i didn't even like write the review straight after finishing it um but i just i, I don't know i feel like it's one of my better reviews I was, I was reading through it again i was like yeah i just 
I feel like this is something I actually talked about because I wanted to talk about it, you know, if that makes sense. Yeah, so, you, uh, you can. It, it's just nice that you can review it on your own time. And it's like if I take an extra day or two or three to kind of, you know, wordsmith it up or think about it, sleep on it, you can do that. Whereas if you're trying to hit an embargo, like oh, I got to get the review up by Friday or whatever, it's just add me next time. Adam. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's like when I when I do a review, I'm bearing the lead a bit here, as as Brian likes to say. But so it's like a bit more this, right? Like it's like, like you're not really talking about thinking about like oh, like I have to like cover like these aspects of the game like in a rigid structure. It's kind of a more of a stream of consciousness. Whatever comes to mind, I'm going to put it on. Yeah, paper. yeah, exactly. Um, and the main takeaways are I really enjoyed pretty much every aspect of it. I don't think. <laughs> okay, it I, I need to be a little bit more specified than that. Okay, okay. So, well, yeah, literally everything it does. So I, I hmm, really liked okay. its graphics. I actually really liked its story. Uh, the gameplay was really good fun. The only element of it that I didn't love were the puzzles. I think I talked about it a little bit last week. They're just, they're rigid and they don't always define exactly what they want to do. So I'm I'm running around feeling like a dum-dum because I can't figure out this puzzle in this like Ubisoft game. And I'm like, oh, why, why am I so stupid? Why can't I figure this out? And then the answer was like in front of me the whole time, but the game like neglects to tell you that. Um, I don't know if I mentioned it last week, but one of the one of my references is that there's this puzzle late on in the game where you have to. I think I, I must have talked about this last week because yeah, I'm, I'm you talked you talked about how you had to like travel really far distance away to get like a bomb or something, and it felt like, yeah, like well, yeah, I, yeah, I, know, yeah. I know this will work, but is this what they intended me to do? I don't know. They haven't really yeah. paved the way very clear uh, very clearly about what what the intent actually was. Is there is there like one of those like for example in Breath of the Wild is for some of the ruins like there's a lot of like solutions to it depending on how you manipulate the physics and what tools they give you to like mess around with it in Immortals is it more rigid than that or can can you at least like manipulate some aspect or physics of the game to, like reach a solution well, this is it. this is what's weird it doesn't really it, it lets you very occasionally and then you can never understand if that's like the rule or if that's an exception. So like the one example where I had to run off and get a boulder to use instead of a crate, it just left me thinking like, is that the rule? Like, is, have I been able to do that the whole time and I've just been completely neglecting it? But like, I, I swear, I went back to other puzzles. You could never do that. You, the game would never let you do that. And then just this one puzzle expected you to. And maybe, maybe that's a good thing. Like to some people, that's like, oh, that's cool. They've they've mixed it around a bit. But I just. I just didn't really enjoy any of the puzzles that much. I, I was kind of glad when they were all over. Um, I think what it suffers from is that the puzzles in the open world mess around with it a lot more like that. Uh, but most of the puzzles are found inside these vaults that don't let you mess around. So like the vo- they're called vaults. They're basically the same thing as shrines in Breath of the Wild. And if you remember, in shrines, you can't climb walls. You can't do certain things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The same as that. And they have like set rules, and that's fine. Like I understand when I'm in a I'm in a vault, I can't go climb on everything. But then in the open world, they mess around with it like a little bit more, and you're just used to how it is in the vaults, and you just don't expect the game to have that sort of creativity because it still doesn't do it very often. So maybe I'm just I'm up in arms about something that doesn't matter. But puzzles are a pretty big part of Immortals, like a really surprisingly big part of it, which I didn't expect going in. Um, so that would be my one. I don't know if I'd call it a major flaw because I still I still did all of them, but my my biggest takeaway is that if you don't like puzzles, then 
I don't know if I'd play it, but the rest uh, of it's I know, cool. like, future DLC aside, because I know there's going to be upcoming DLC. I think one's basically, like, on the either came out just recently or is coming out. Yeah, yeah, out. came out the other day. Yeah. Like, there, like some, the, some of those are, like, going to switch up, like, the gameplay. Like, one of those going to be, like, isometric, I think, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Like, aside, like, we're pushing that aside for a bit. Like, would you like to see a sequel or follow-up to Immortals? And if you would, like, what would you like to see, like, changed or improved or enhanced? I, I would love to see a sequel to Immortals. Like I, so I gave it an eight, and I was just I was really happy with it. But I kind of feel like with this DLC they're doing, at least for the case of the Chinese mythology one, like that could be its own game in in its entirety. Like I, I don't know how big they're going to go with it because I, I don't really know. They haven't revealed too much of the scope, but it looks like it could be its own game. So I don't know. I I kind of wish they'd just done that. Like do a different do Immortals, and it, I, I think what's the character called? Like. I don't know. Koo, I think it's called. Like, Immortals, Koo's Rising. That'd be awesome. I'd, I'd be so down for that. Uh, I don't know if they will. I, I think it depends on how well this DLC does, but I'm genuinely tempted to buy the season pass. And I rarely do that. Like, I'm not a big DLC guy. Like I say, I'm, when I'm done, I'm done. Uh, but I'm really, really excited to see what they do with it. So I have a question. What did yep. you think about the game's, like, humor and writing? I've heard... Let me just be blunt and say I've heard mixed things about it. Like some people are just put <laughs> yeah. off. Uh, I like how you I've said you're going to be blunt, but then you still like temper it with like a oh, mixed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it's just I've heard people call it like Family Guy humor or whatever. Uh, there's so many examples where yeah, there are some bad jokes. There are some like genuinely cringe moments that. There go, like, oh god! But I think it balances it quite well by the end with like how much you actually care about Phoenix and their story, like, and the the gods are all really interesting as well, and they're just taken to a comic level. Like, if you know anything about Greek mythology, you know they all they all kind of suck, and it's just taken to the ni- the nth degree here. Um, it didn't bug me that much. Like, some of the jokes are actually really clever. I've talked about it before, but there's the one about uh, the origin of Aphrodite that's really cleverly done and there's just little stuff like that sprinkled all over if you can just ignore like the occasional like weird ah there's there's one that really bugged me a while ago when i was playing it but like some of the references are like modern and just doesn't vibe well um but my, it seems my like, take it seems like but... uh you like the humor that was more sort of rooted in in greek mythology in some way rather than like a modern like you said, like reference or meme or something like that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I think honestly, I'm not a massive fan of Assassin's Creed. Like I can definitely appreciate what some people say in it, but I, I personally don't like it that much now. Uh I would love for them to sort of do like a like I've said, like an immortals, but for different time periods, different mythologies. Like that is more interesting to me, even with some cringe jokes and puzzles, that is more interesting than what assassin's creed does and that's that's like a really blanket statement like i'm not speaking for anyone else that's just me but i I would always prefer something like a bit more original a bit more wacky as i say in my review uh but yeah no go play immortals it's great like brian don't hedge on it it's it's good i I wonder i wonder if like if they were to release like a follow-up or sequel to this i wonder if like that commentary on mythology or just like that you know smash tv-esque like commentary over the story and, and gameplay 
and whatnot. I wonder if that's the, they they see that as like as that's that's part of the identity of this immortal this immortals. You're right. I knew thought of that. Yeah, because in, in the case of Phoenix Rising, it's like it's Prometheus telling a story which fits with Greek mythology. I'm sure they'd they'd find other ways of doing it, but I I really enjoyed that because it just makes little things like sometimes you'll go to a new location and otherwise it'd be just a little puzzle. Sometimes they make a comment like, "Oh, here's this Greek uh, mythological figure. Here's a funny joke about it. So funny sometimes it's just interesting." Once you finish the game, like how this is going to sound really stupid, but how Ubisoft does it feel? Like, is it like there's a giant map and a thousand checklists, or is it a little bit more? railroaded it's it's somewhere in the middle there are some very ubisoft things like there's a there's an in-game store where you can use a currency that you pay real money for there are some daily and weekly challenges that's just so daily and weekly <laughs> like i guess it's just extra content but whenever i see it i'm just like don't put this in there and then there's stuff like this dlc for outfits it just feels very like I'm just going to say something really quick. Dailies and weeklies and crap like that is the main reason why I'm never going to have the Platinum Trophy for Rayman Legends, even though I got it for Rayman Origins. Yes. Yeah, I remember that. Awful yeah. Are, I love Legends. But that, that's like, that's the thing. Ubisoft just like to interfere. They like to have their online aspects. It's not too invasive. It's It's kind of annoying sometimes, but you don't have to do it. A lot of the time, I just accidentally do them and then just reap the rewards. But in terms of like stuff on the map, there's all the vaults. There's some optional bosses. There's these little that, that map is littered with icons, though. Like when you yeah, yeah. properly open it, it's, it's it's, not it's, it feels not overwhelming. Yeah, it. I I found it okay compared to something like Ubisoft. And I always say like, if a game's too big, I'm not interested. So take it from anyone that it's like it's not too stuffed. Okay. They've actually like maybe you know they've put they've put in enough that has originally you know intrigued people about open worlds without it feeling like a chore or something that's just endless. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, as well as that, like it helps that the world is just so so gorgeous. Like I I know I don't know why you don't like the the style as much, Brian. I think it looks fantastic. Like the I just I pulled up the uh, I pulled up the UPlay store page and i was ready to buy and then i saw two things back to back that immediately made me like close that app on my computer mm-hmm. i saw the like spend 20 bucks for 2000 gem crystal or whatever they are like <laughs> what and then i saw like the uh trailer and i i just don't like how it looks uh, the, the, irrationally the so it just it's the one where prometheus is like uh make it more epic you know like he's he's trying to do like the movie trailer <clears throat> thing i saw that and that nearly put me off like it's just oh, yeah, the, the, like the like the, the very, not the very first show, like the when it was still like gods and monsters. It was like the one after that when they revealed that like uh, was it yeah, yeah. Or, or like, it was like so a, yeah that, that initial trailer for the the game and it was titled Immortals. Uh, that that was, feel, wasn't very bad. I feel like it's it's been a rocky road for Immortals. Like first being gods and monsters, and then sometimes it comes off as very cringe. But I think overall the reception has been pretty good like yeah, i i think word of mouth has been okay for that game i'm i'm excited for the future of it i, I hope it gets a future uh i hope it isn't just relegated to dlc or well maybe the dlc is gonna be great I, I probably will check it out but i'm fully recommending it to everyone to give it a go and then one final thought like 
uh, I really am glad that you decided to write this, even though you, you there's there's always kind of this, I don't want to say issue, but this pervading undertone in games media where it's like, oh, it's time has passed. We can't talk about that anymore. So I'm glad that we still have an avenue where you can put it up on the website, talk about it here. Because when I look back at like my Wasteland 3 review, and I wrote that a couple months late, and I didn't feel it at the time. But when I reread that review of mine, I was like, man, I, this I'm really proud of this. I thought I did a good job here. When I read some of my review where I was pushed up against an embargo, I'm like, man, if I had time, I would have I would have I would have smithed this a bit differently. So yeah, I don't know if no, I completely agree. Way. Yeah, I, I'm it's one of those reviews I was really excited to get out there just because I, I, I read through it. I was like, I feel like I'm, you know, saying some interesting things about it and I'm being given the space to breathe with it. Uh, it's it's just kind of a shame because I feel like whatever review I write next, seems like oh god, deadlines, deadlines. But yep. you know, it's fun to do welcome, something different. Welcome, welcome back to the grind. <laughs> Speaking of meeting an embargo, <laughs> oh yeah, everyone clap. <laughs> <laughs> All right, another review that just went up uh, yesterday, I believe, a pretty major one for the website. We have a review from Josh Torres for Yeast Nine Monstrum Knox. And you, yep. uh, I don't think you've really had a chance to talk about this on the podcast due to not being here or embargoes or whatever. Yeah, so, like like last weekend, I was just uh, go, going at it because you know the the code didn't like came in a little bit late ish because of stuff. Yeah, but you know, um, yeah. So I was grinding out away on it uh, last weekend. That's why I wasn't here. Um, this is East Eight is a tough act to follow because I like I I really 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 liked East Eight. A lot of people really liked East Eight. Uh, it it really was one of those games that like was like whoa this is kind of like the next step up from like for the East series and but for better or worse you know they uh, Falcom leaned more into like hey every NPC matters now like they all have a story arc and like it's leaning more to the Trails uh, series type of narrative and approach. But uh, for some reason, like you know, I, East Nine is a really, really, really good game. I really enjoyed my time with it. Um, I like that it's like it, it takes place. Um, I don't know how much time or how many years after East Eight. It definitely places it takes place after it. So uh, it takes well, place does, after East Yeah, actually. I was actually going to say East that East technically East does seven? doesn't it go doesn't it go eight seven it's nine eight seven nine? Okay, yeah. Okay. Well, actually, it goes five eight six. Seven nine because um, Adol has what? the uh, penultimate um, sword from East Five at the very beginning. Yeah, of the East Eight. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> yeah. Before it like falls off the boat or whatever, I don't remember. <laughs> so it's actually uh, funny because when you get the ultimate sword in East Nine, because there's always an ultimate sword in East. One of the dialogue options is, "I wonder if I'm going to lose this one too." <laughs> the answer yes. Yeah, so the story setup of uh, East Nine is uh, Adol and Odogi uh, reaches in, uh, this prison city of Balduk. The and so the when you right away when you hit when you hit start, you know uh, Adol's making a prison escape, and you're just like, "What the hell's going on?" So he's making this prison escape, and uh, you know along the way, this is like in the first like three, two to three minutes of the game, like there's this um, hooded figure, this mysterious uh, young woman. Uh, uh, with a with a hood, and she's like, you know, uh, sorry for what I'm about to do to you, but we all kind of need you. And shoots him with this like magical gun, and uh, this the uh, bullet that goes through him transforms him into like a superhero esque uh, identity known as the Crimson King. 
and uh, which the the now he's a monstrum that, that's the label that he give, gives these like kind of superhero esque forms and whatnot, and so, so and then it does like the flashback thing of like oh how the hell did Adol get here you know and the there's a really kind of funny tongue in cheek setup about this of uh, Adol and Dogi try to enter Balduk and then right away Adol like is arrested and it's like the hell why is Adol getting arrested. So apparently, like you know, the 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 Romans are back. So Ram Ra is uh, involved in the story, like in other and whatnot. Um, and Adol, by this point in time, is kind of like an infamous adventurer. Like uh, people around the around the continent have uh, heard about the tales of Adol, and like, however, if he's mixed up into something like something weird or something or a catastrophe will happen. And whatnot. So he's basically being invested for his adventures. It's like, so like early on, as he's getting interrogated in this prison, like there's this um, the, the interrogator Ingrid, her name was. Uh, th there's a lot of like a little funny like references to like like past games just in dialogue, passing dialogue during this interrogation. Like, oh, what happened to this place? What happened in Otago? What happened in the Isle of Saren? You know, just all these past places that. My favorite one is the mention about how he always crashes his boat, and he's yeah. And, and there's a dialogue choice saying that happens all the time. Yep, <laughs> yeah. She mentions the shipwreck. She's like, and it's like, and she's like, it's very curious how you always come into possession of these like powerful artifacts and swords, and then somehow lose them. And Adol's like, yep, <laughs> no, and what that. So he's serving time there, and then you know, I just uh, it reminds me of that one quote. I know writers that use t subtext, and they're all cowards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, the things happen and whatnot, so he's on the run. And um, the, one of the weird things about this East game is, uh, since Adol has, is on the run from the law, uh, the people in Balduk, uh, you know, obviously you recognize Adol right away by his hair, by his red, crimson hair and whatnot. So he's like... Well, I can't. This this can't fly. So you know, uh, as he's on the run, he comes across this blue dye. So Adol is basically uh, blue-haired in this game for uh, when he's not his monstrum form, because uh, he can inter like interchangeably like switch between like you know being regular Adol or the Crimson King, and whatnot. So you know, uh, much like East Eight, um, in East Eight, like uh, you know, you ha you end up on this like cursed island. Um, castaway village. Uh, you recruit like people. You find survivors on the island and whatnot. Then you recruit them into the to that village. Uh, there's a similar mechanic here in East Nine where you establish your base of operations in this dandelion bar in Balduk. Um, the reason that uh, Adol is like you know kind of stuck in Balduk is because the the curse that Aprilis, uh, the the hooded young woman, uh, put on him uh, makes it so that he can transform into this. You know, monstrum form, but as a result, he can't leave Balduk. Like every time you try to leave Balduk, there's always this like barrier that uh, doesn't allow you to leave. So it's like, okay, so the the story setup is, how do I get rid of this curse on, on me? And obviously, there's a lot more to Balduk that than meets the eye. There's a lot of mysteries around it. So clearly, something is going on with this city, and mm -hmm. I need to f find out first how to leave the city. Uh, but before that, I want to know what's going on in the city. <laughs> Um, so uh, throughout like uh, like the first uh, like bunch of chapters, uh, it kind of has this uh, ongoing like cycle of like 
trying to like try to unlock sections of the city because very early on, like not only can you not leave the city, like each like district or part of the city that you that you're in is is gated off. And there and there are other people like you who summer a similar curse where they're monstrums, so they can't leave and the, and whatnot. So as, as like a chapter begins, for example, like uh, you'll unlock like a portion of the city. And how you do this is like there's this Nox meter, this like weird Nox meter, like always at the like top left hand corner and whatnot. And you're uh, going like either completing side quests or like uh, duking it out with like uh, monsters around the city. And like the, the monsters aren't like can't be seen by normal people. They 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 reside in like these like weird. Um, reality rifts kind of they're kind of like black holes or rifts around the city that normal people can't see but only monstrums can see so you you like kind of <laughs> yeah <laughs> thanks, george. <laughs> thanks george <laughs> um <laughs> so you kind of so as you know as you're running around city you you approach one of these and then like a battle will start and whatnot like uh, you're just kind of duking out in the middle of the city as, and people are just like walking by like whatever you know you can't see anything uh, and, actually, they're paused, and they're not moving when you're battling. Oh, sorry. Yeah, they're like frozen in, in time. Um, and so, so as you're like charging this like Nox meter and whatnot, uh, you're trying to get it to a hundred, and then once you get it to a hundred, it'll like open like this like an orbish thing with like tentacles sticking out of this orb will appear at like in front of like one of these barriers. And so you I don't know what it's called in English, but I know in Japanese it was basically called like a seed or something. Yeah, I forgot what it was called, but it's like it's a it's like a portal to to a thing called like the Grimwald Knox. Um, so you're like, okay, uh, you initiate this, and you, you're plunged into um, those. If you're if you guys have played East Eight, like there are these like raid battles in it, where you, like you defend the village through this like this this tower defense thing from oncoming uh, incoming monsters. So that mechanic is back in East Nine, but it's like comes back more of in a full force, more story relevant. So you go into this Grimwald Knox, and you're you're plunged into that this tower defense battle where you can like you know you there's like monster portals all around. Their waves are coming in, and then it's up to you and your and your party to like uh, fend them off uh, after wave after wave and whatnot. And just like in East Eight, you have like these structures that you can like build and level up so the, they they can help you out like decoys debuff zones and whatnot and but the nice thing about how it's done this time around because i know in east 8 i was like fed up with like how they did it because they were all stretched out they dragged on a bit too long it wasn't really that interesting in this one like the 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 way that they populate the map it's it's much more condensed and enclosed so everything is kind of near each other and it, so it doesn't take as long, and sometimes, like you know, there will be um, like ambushes from behind the structure that you need to protect. So it kind of keeps you on your toes as well. It's like, oh man, I need to go like uh, straight back right away uh, to the thing I have to defend and whatnot. So I like, feel it, like one thing that you haven't really touched on, I think, is the most interesting aspect of it is that in the like village defenses in these eight, you just had your immediate party members fighting with you. But from the very beginning in East Nine, you have all of the monstrums fighting on the screen at once, yeah, which is yeah. kind of neat. Yeah, I, I mentioned that in my review. That like uh, the, that's the really cool thing about you know at least you know, the, for as much as like 
the tower defense battles are like kind of whatever in East 8. And in East 9, it feels more lively because, the, as you said, you know, your entire party is always with you. They, everyone's like, every time you enter a Grimwald Nox, they're all kind of forced in with you because that's part of the curse. It's like, oh, well, kind of like showing up to work. It's like, oh, well, here we are again. Uh, whether we, we want to be or not, it's uh, we're here and you have to do this. So the, that's like a big thing about it. And there's also a, a variation of this Grimwald Nox where, you know, you, you, shout, you, you break crystals all around the map. So it's not so it's a little break from the tower defense stuff as well. Um, so uh, after like you do these uh, parts, you lock that portion of the city and whatnot, and then you kind of um, go into this cycle every, like for a good chunk of chapters where you uh, start start a chapter, you do some side quests, fight some battles to open these portals, so you unlock that portion of the city, then you'll meet like your next two B party member because the a good chunk of East Nine is about like meeting, not meeting your your meeting the other monstrums, and like as part of that, you'll learn of their real identities along with them. So a, a lot of the mystery is not only just what's happening to see, but like who are the people with you, who are the like you know uh, who's actually helping you out and whatnot. And I really, 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 really like uh, how Falcom approached uh, the 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 characters in East Nine. They're all really interesting, and they all have like. Pretty cool backgrounds uh, because you know uh, most of them are like kind of always been in Balduk, like residents of Balduk. So they all have like pre-established like you know relationships, pre-established like histories of the place. So you kind of get to see you know what's going on in their lives, their perspective, the whole thing of their whole situation and whatnot. And you know every, everyone has like something different to add to the equation, and they all come from different walks of life. Some like different uh, you know parts of society and whatnot. That's, so that, that's good to hear because uh, I feel like one of the weakest elements of East games up to nine has been like the party members are just sort of there with the mm-hmm. exception of like Donna in East eight, who, which the story is clearly hers, like Salsetta, East seven, and even most of the characters in East eight, like the party members, I don't like, they're not really that interesting characters like the Fisher guy whose name I forget or Hummel or, you know, I feel like. I feel like Rakota has a bit more of an interesting a little bit because sort of because sort of the same reason that Josh was just mentioning that she's sort of tied to the setting in a way and that inherently made her more interesting uh, and Donna obviously very much so but it was it was a bit thin still so that's good to hear that the character the party members that you get here they sound interesting they seem to have like a purpose in terms of how they tie into this location the setting and the story more so than just being like along for the ride. Completely random, but one thing I love about um, Raging Bull, for example, is that so each of the party members comes with a gift that lets you do certain things. Like uh, Adol's is like the uh, the grappling hook, in, like, yeah, yeah, comes in line, which lets you like grapple onto at like portions of the like pillars and stuff in the world, which have like a kind of diamond outline to it. It you'll know it when you see it. Then you have, like, obviously White Cat has uh, Heaven's Run, which lets you literally walk, like, run up a a vertical wall. Um, Raging Bull, (laughs) whenever you activate one of of the um, Monstrum gifts that isn't her, she'll completely butcher the name, unless it's her gift, and then she she absolutely remembers what it's called. Oh, yeah, that's a really good... Fun character perk. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, everyone, like, is, like, 
I, I feel like I should say, like, if you've been listening to Tetris for a while, then you already know. But I, I played three nine Japanese. I did our import review, so I haven't played the Western version. I'm just kind of piping in because I do have experience with the game. Yeah, and it's cool. Like, I never found like any of them really that annoying either. Like, I know some like past party members kind of got on my nerves, but everyone here was pretty like well balanced. Uh, I feel they kind of. They all they all work with each other really well, and I I, I distinctly remember when um, James was showing off East Nine like the Japanese version, like he's like he was very surprised at like how he felt restricted and how he, how much he can show because um, he said even if I, I pop in the main menu it'll it'll be a spoiler because as you pop in the main menu in this game like it'll show just basically like the real names of the monsters with you and whatnot and. Like you know, it, it sounds it it sounds weird to anyone who hasn't played this, but it is some of them are like legitimately like big spoilers too of like just like knowing their name. It's like it's it's so weird to think about, but it 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 totally works. It's like it's one of those things. It's like I, I really want to know who this person is, and it's essentially. And when you get there, it's like oh, interesting. You know, that's kind of cool. Like how where this person comes from and whatnot. Um, Sorry to just butt in, Josh, just because it's mm-hmm. I've suddenly remembered. Uh, I've actually now played the demo for East Nine. I have never played any other game in the series, but at the pushing of Cullen and you, Josh, uh, I decided to give it a go. It's a demo, why not? <laughs> I'm really into it. Like I, I think it's really good fun. Uh, and this is going to seem really bizarre and random, but the the, the gameplay reminds me a lot of uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles: Mutants in Manhattan. <laughs> uh-huh. I never. It's bizarre, but just the movement and then the skills tied to holding down one button, then pressing another, and they're all on like a, a timeout. Like it, it's probably it's better than Mutants Manhattan. Yeah, so it like, feels responsive. Like like you know, as you're, as you're, like, yeah. If, I you, no if, idea, you, anyway. if you write for another site about this game, I want to see this comparison. Like at like in I the will, forefront, like better, <laughs> East Nine better than Mutants in Manhattan. <laughs> Um, so I know you mentioned this in your review, Josh, but yeah. first of all, I love East 8's combat gameplay, especially. Um, mm-hmm. I played the game on Nightmare, and it's just like one of those fun, challenging, intense games. Does East 9's gameplay change things up to any significant degree compared to 8? I think you mentioned it, it uses like the, those, those traversal abilities in battle a little bit. Is that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So the a lot of the gameplay is very, you know, identical to East Eight. Uh, you know, you have your basic attack button. You have you can set up to four skills in battle, and then you know you hold down R one, and it'll coincide with one of the face buttons that uh, pop off skills. You level them up like the more you use them, so they use less uh, skill points to pop off and whatnot. And as you complete like you know quests and whatnot, you'll get like these elixirs to expand your SP bar. A lot of that stuff is is very identical to East 8. The the one like major change that here is since we were talking about it earlier, the the Crimson King special gift is the the Crimson Line. So it basically has the ability to either like traversal like grapple instantly onto points or onto enemies. So you like target an enemy, you hit that button, and then it'll immediately extend that hit like his gift out and you'll immediately like warp over to that to that enemy that you targeted. So moving around is very Think narrow fast. from Devil May Cry. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's very fast to, to like approach enemies now. So like you know you no longer have to like run over to them if they're like out of reach for an ability. You just crimson line over to them. Um, and this was a this was a thing in East Eight as well. 
include like a, a monstrum gift, like a, a, the Raging Bull's Valkyrie Hammer. It functions a lot like the charge attack uh, in East 8, where you just hold down the button and you you break through defenses and you'll gain a lot of SP back uh, once that hits. Uh, so you'll you'll get it late, later on in that in that, but you that's like tied to an ability. Other than that, it's not like crazy different from East but I think that's a good thing because I really like East combat. Like, really, yeah. Like- I as someone who wasn't big on, I know it's like a console game versus handheld games. But I wasn't big on like Celsetta or Seven, and I was just kind of like, man, I don't really like the party East. Bring back Oath and Vulgana, you know. Um, but I really liked Eight, so if Nine is sort of just more of that, I'm like you know what, I'm fine with that for now. Yeah, and and then you know the Flash move and Flash Guard are back, and I, I know people can be divisive about that, about that at times. It's still back. It's you know identical to how East Eight handles it uh, and whatnot. So I mean, it, to to me, it doesn't really bother me that much. Because I, I enjoy that system, and the um, way the uh, meter works this time is uh, closer to like East Origins meter, where it's like a boost mode, and then you can do it, then you can pop it again to do your uh, special attack. So right, unless you instantly have a special attack, it's like you pop it, you can use it for a bit, and then like right before it runs out, be like, aha, it's time to let loose. Yeah, yeah. So as James said, like you know, like there's a separate meter to go into boost mode. And then you can uh, 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 that that meter will constantly drain, you know, as the longer it goes on. But you can like end it at any time with a like a big extra ultimate attack and whatnot. Uh, the the one big big improvement, I mean, th- this is like the the thing about the the game for the most part is just traversing around uh, Balduk. Since you know you're kind of trapped within the city, um, there's you. You would you need to have a very interesting like traversal mechanic because like, you'll be you'll be going a lot around a lot that city a lot. So the like with White Cat's ability being able to like run up walls with the Hawk's ability you can glide around, and then of course you know, with the Crimson Kin you can grapple. There's a lot of very interesting like movement uh, mechanics you can do around the city, and the way they've built up the city of Balduke is like really interesting. There's like a lot of like neat landmarks like you can go on top of like this like chapel area. You can see like this Colosseum area. You can go to this other district that's like, uh, you know, run by the nobles and where the nobles reside. So there's uh, there's always something to see around the city and exploring around it. And the way you move around it is like it's up to you how you want to, uh, what's more most comfortable to you. You know, some people will just you know would rather run around the streets, but other people will just like I'm gonna go you know uh, grapple to this uh, high area and then I want to go glide down there after running up it. And then as I'm gliding, I'll go straight into like a grapple to get to, into this place and whatnot. And just the way you kind of move around feels fluid, and there's and the verticality of the environments makes it so like there's always something to see both at top and sometimes there's like the uh, uh, things to see at the bottom, like a, like an underground waterway, like you know, like this quest NPC you can't find it. It's like oh, it's because they're like at, at this underground waterway by like a, a canal. And there's a lot of reasons to explore, too. And I'll just say this, because I'm sure George is going to ask it. Yes, Balduk itself is basically open world. Um, so there's stuff like the uh, petals, the uh, bl- the blue or azure. Yeah, there's, yeah, the tra- azure, azure petals. There's a, yeah. Uh, yeah, you can, like, there's, like, there's this NPC that, you know, you, that rewards you for, you know, there, there's different NPCs for rewarding you on collectibles, like how much of the map you explored, how many azure petals you explored. There's also there's also a cool mechanic or collectible rather where there's there's graffiti all around Balduke and every one of these like uh, graffiti pieces have like uh, like a little like 
passage on them or a little comment on them to kind of flesh out either like uh, just uh, just a tad bit about like the people who live in Balduk or like or maybe even the lore of Balduk a little bit and some of them will even result into battles because the one who wrote the graffiti was like not in the, the right state of mind so they might just have a spontaneous just, battle Josh I just realized something what's it's up literally Roman shit posting <laughs> it's true and you're not wrong so the, that that's like the, there's there's compelling reasons to like move around the map and like find these collectibles. Obviously, there's chests all around the map as well. And and to to, to uh, build off your point, James, of like uh, like how it feels like an open world. I think that's what helps. You know, it it feels great to move around Baldu because you know you're not constantly like shifting like into different zones. Like to like there's not like a separate zone area to like get to the noble district or whatnot. You just go fly on over there if like if it's like open to you and whatnot. Like I, I remember in East Eight, one of my big, um, the things, the, one of the big things that really bothered me about it, and it's, because, and it's probably because it was it was built for the Vita initially, um, was that the Isle of Saren, uh, the the island that you're on, was very divided, very segmented. Like you go into this area, it's like, oh, I want to go back into like to the, the area that I was previously in, but then you know, I, like I remember there are even maps that like the bigger maps in the East Eight that were that was weird. It's like you can. You know they're on they're on the same map, but they're divided into a different zone in it. So you're like going to like the left side of that area, but it was divided it was divided to a separate zone. And yeah. I think that's just a carry over from there's the, something the, interesting yeah. about that is that East Eight on Vita, like even like Castleway Village was segmented in a way that yeah. like they even went back to it on PS4 and were like, well, we don't really need it to be segmented anymore. And so they kind of made it so it was like one big zone except for like the cave. So Yeah. So, it, that uh, so it feels really, really good now to just you know, not not have to deal with that. Uh, obviously, there there are still like some weird, weird zoning areas, like when you're like going down a staircase at like this small part of the city that like you can you can normally go down it like just like if you glide down there to that area, but like the if you if you want to access it like through just going down a stairs that leads to that area, that's like has like a zone like a set like a dotted zone thing that like you phase into. Which is like a weird design decision, but you know, it's not it's not a big deal. Um, uh, another thing that really stuck out to me in East Nine was like the side quests are some of the best in the series, in my opinion. I really like how like just most of the side quests uh, like exist to like fulfill either like the lore or the environment or to um like recruit people into like your dandelion bar and there there are interesting ways of like how they find to uh justify that through the side quest and uh, as i mentioned in the in my review like there's this like some particular side quest chains that really surprised me that they were optional side quests because the they feel like they should have been part of the main narrative yeah yeah the the because because some of these side quest chains like really serve to like get to get the big picture of like yeah Josh and I are being vague about it because it is kind of spoilerly, and yeah. that's also the reason why we think it probably should have been main narrative. Like that's something that I commented on in my import review as well because it's like, man, this is really cool. Why is this side quest? And, and then, um, this, is like, this is a game also where you can permanently miss side quests. Luckily, those ones that like are like kind of that kind of enrich the main narrative in a vital way are they're they're hard to miss in the way that the game's structured and how it, the game. Also, what's really nice is that. Um, even unlisted side quests show up on the uh, map for Balduk. So if you're looking at the map, you'll see like little um, 
icons letting you know that there's a side quest there and that's really helpful yeah it, it i don't think it's i don't think it's really that hard to go for 100 percent completion if you're like regularly checking the uh map and even then it's not like side quests like expire super quickly anyways it's not like easy i feel like where there was like a side quest with the one noble dude that wanted you to get the specific like food and okay. as soon as you get the recipe for it like if you don't do it immediately he basically just disappears yeah yeah the, um i mean the the I, I missed like two side quests in my playthrough because I just, it, I, I just wasn't. You were, you were rushing for a review too. In a way. Yeah, in a way, also, yeah. But you know, uh, but uh, like those like marked hidden quests on the maps, like sometimes it's easy to miss them. Like if you haven't uncovered that area of the map, um, like some I, I was easy, it was easy to tell right away, but there were just some that like I just didn't, uh, I just forgot to check the map at certain points. It's like oh, whatever. So, uh, but mo most of the like most of the side quests will show up on the bulletin board by the Dandelion Bar, and uh, you know, um, I think. Oh, uh, actually, that reminds me. The game even tells you when new uh, quests get added to the bulletin board too. I don't remember if they, if they if they oh yeah it'll it'll tell you if it gets added to the bulletin board, but not hidden hidden quests. Yeah, hidden quests never are never you you never get notified by them until like. You you only know you missed a hidden quest is when you go to the next chapter and you look at your journal and just like oh what's this new quest entry failed okay cool well it was nice knowing that then um, <laughs> the the first time that happened I was like oh um, I think one one of the big things that people will have to learn to overcome with East Night I I grew to appreciate it but I know a lot of people will be it'll it might be a divisive thing is. Uh, like with most East games, especially with East Eight, uh, for a lot of people, like a lot of people really like the vibrant color palette of it. You know, and the, you're in this island; it's very bright. The, everything is very. There's a lot of uh, saturation of color, so it's very rich. Lots uh, of blues, and greens, right? Yes, yeah. yeah. And um, in East Nine, it's very drab, dreary. You know, it's a, it's a lot of muted colors, a lot of grays. Uh, it, it, it can get get a little bit foggy at times. It it feels. It feels like kind of you know just lifeless in a sense, but as the story went on uh, and, and developments throughout, like I kind of I started to really enjoy and soak in the environment and atmosphere of that game. There's like the, like to to me, not a lot of games like really get to do that kind of like uh, setting in games in, in fear of like it might get boring to people. You know, it always has to be look lively to me. I, I, like I really like the it felt, is it, it felt selling is it selling the setting. Yeah, yeah, so, I think so because you're, because well, you're stuck in you're stuck in this like in, prison yeah. city. Like you're like there's an oppressive premise to it. Like inherently, there are still like great like like heartwarming moments between characters. But in, by and whole, it's the the the, the situation that Adol and Dogi find themselves in, and all the characters that like are relevant to, to it. It's like it's not a great, <laughs> you know, it's a, there's not a, 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 like a ton to be super happy about. And like ah oh, yeah, let's go let's go again. It's like ah oh, well. We're kind of stuck in this situation. Let's try to make the most of it. Uh, and I, I kind of, I really like that. I really like that about the game. That's like kind of what like I want to say is that um, I feel like there's a difference between being drab and dreary and being like grainy and kind of like uninspired in some areas. Like the one thing that stood out to me with East Nine that I really wish it was a little bit better about is I can understand the difference in art style, but I felt like the fields that you eventually explore aren't nearly as interesting as some of the ones in, like, Ease 8. 
like you never get like one of those instances like coming down from Jen Jen's the, um, Dom or however you pronounce it, which, which is really striking in East Nine. Like none of the fields are like that. And I understand that's partially because the game itself is supposed to be focused around the city. But if you're gonna have the fields, I feel like I wouldn't want the cities to be as vibrant as you see it in this game. It would feel totally wrong. And, and oh like, yeah, I don't. I, I didn't mean like the vibrant. I don't necessarily mean the vibrancy. I just mean like the art style is one thing, but I feel like, I don't know, the game itself, yes, it's drab and dreary, but I feel like some of the locations are boring in a sense that I don't think they necessarily needed to be because there's games like Dark Souls that have drab and dreary environments that are still interesting to look at. Dark Souls is a weird one because like that, like it's not really drab and dreary the way they contextualize it and how the lighting engine in that game works. Like it's it, it's supposed to be, but it's really not in a weird way for that game. In, in, in this game, you know, like to me, like there were yes, there were some like kind of environments, but for the most part, I really I really dug that like where where it it took you in, the, especially later in the game. Um, and that I'm just like talking around it at this point. You know? It's hard to really explain without getting down. Uh, I'll just be blunt with how good the final dungeon looks and how interesting it is. I'm disappointed that the rest of the game was so uninteresting to me. Yeah, well, you know, I, I feel a little bit differently, but I'm kind of interested to see like where, where like different people will fall on that because it's a, it's, like I said, it's a very different kind of escape. Um, and I really like that they kind of they, they kind of went out. It's like, hey, we're not just going to make another one of these. We're really going to take it into a different direction, like the way it, ha- it handles like the flow of story and narrative in that game. It's, it's very, huh. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I, the story in East Nine is really interesting, and I'm glad, I'm really glad that what was my hot take from people that played the Japanese version seems to be the uh, presiding opinion that East Nine's story is better than East Eight's. I think so, too, for sure. Yeah. To be honest, I'm not really a huge fan of Isate's story. Like, I love Isate, but and I li- and I like Donna as a character, but like the actual story part of it kind of feels done before to me, and it's the way it's presented is really kind of awkward. Uh, I was somewhat concerned when I heard that East Nine puts a little bit more focus on like a narrative through front, but it sounds like it does a pretty good job, and it yeah. sounds like some of my heart my higher concerns that. I was sort of concerned that it would be like full of references to the previous games. Like, well, it remember is. when? Well, I was I was afraid they're going to be like tactless and without any effort. Like, remember this is just like when we were in the Isle of Saren. Do you remember when you did this? Oh yeah, and that's when this and this and this happened. And it's just I apparently yeah, it's, yeah, it's not yeah. the blunt as that. No, no. Uh, Adam and I were talking about it a little bit, uh, yeah, you know, in staff chat. But yeah, it's a, the the way they kind of uh, surface that stuff makes sense and it flows naturally and. Uh, it's also great that, like you know, uh, Nice America learned from last time of the East Eight's localization, the way that launched and whatnot. The East Nine's localization out of, out of the gate is pretty excellent. I really like how they, uh, how it just it reads well, it flows well. There's not like there's not the archaeological big hole incident that happened in East Eight, um, and I think, yeah, I, I guess the, my my final thing about this game, and you know, we've we've gone over it in the review. We've reached out to Nice America over it. You know, as I was playing this game on PS5 primarily, like I've suffered a lot of crashes on PS5 for, you know, our early, uh, you know, build of East 9. Not not build, but like the early release of it. And, and this whatnot. is really, really useful because 
well, obviously when I originally played East 9, I played it on PS4, but recently, like when I got my PS5, I did a replay of East 9 on PS5, the Japanese version. I didn't have any of those crashes. So we can say definitively it's an issue with the localization. Yeah, with the local, like, yeah, the, the Western release and whatnot. So like, you know, it, it would happen like sporadically. It would sometimes happen in a cutscene at a specific point. That was uh that could be repeated. Um, sometimes it would happen um, just like during like a a cutscene where nothing's happening. Like uh, that that's what happened for me. Like uh, my final crash of the game after I'm beating the final boss. There's like a uh, somewhere in the in the final stretch of the very very final stretch of the game. Uh, it crashed on me just when nothing was really happening on the screen, and I was like, well, it didn't auto save like you know after the bo- final boss fight. So I had to go re-download the game on my PS4 Pro. To fight that final boss again, and then you know I was doing I was doing some PS4 Pro testing performance uh, soon after I was done with the game. Um, it ha- it would happen sometimes when I was like just leaving the dandelion bar. Sometimes it would just crash like you know after taking like four or five steps out of there. Um, so it it just it's one of those things that's like at some even if, like during a, a side quest uh, like there were like certain parts of the side quest where it was just like like I got like three crashes there like. Consistently at different points of that side quest, it, it's just it was one of those things. Like, oh man, you know this. Hopefully, this becomes just a footnote. Like, oh yeah, right. it was it was messy at launch, and now no one it, it, it's right. fixed and it. Yeah, no I. So, and I asked America has a history of like poor QA and like issues with games having crashes. I know, like it was infamous, especially on PS3, where like some of the Sky games, like if you used fire, like spells, they would overheat the PS3, which was like. Ugh kind of ironic and then there was stuff like witch in the hundred night on ps3 had like horrific crashing issues oh, yeah, so nisa has a history with this but i feel like this specific instance with east 9 on ps5 is maybe a little bit less of their fault because a little bit of inside baseball but like nisa was waiting on sony to get them retail code to send out to reviewers for weeks before we actually got any and mm-hmm. i doubt that NIS America have a PS5 dev kit yet, which means yeah. that they would have had to wait it for retail code in order to test on PS5 if they even have any. So yeah, they, they probably literally could not test it on PS5, yeah. like literally unable to, like they could yeah. not do it. Yeah. So I mean, it's like you you know, if like uh, just uh, just for full transparency, you know, we've been you know exchanging you know emails with them here and there, just kind of helping them out, like. You know, just like, hey, this is where we uh, notice that like it's crashing consistently here and whatnot. Because you know, like that, what we want uh, is like for the best experience for everyone who plays this game, right? Uh, wh- whether it's good or bad, we just uh, like whether it's a good game or a bad game, a game should like never suffer like fatal crashes like this for anyone. Yeah, yeah. it should have been but, better, but I feel like at least in this instance, uh, not. I think the blame is spread. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's, it's like you know, we're not going to point fingers at anyone here. You know, like the, just the kind of the reality that we live in at the moment, it, it makes it difficult, right? So let's just you know, Nice America has already responded to us uh, since like you know hours after uh, the review went up, like saying, "All right, yeah, we're we're like before before when I was going through the game, say we're currently investigating it, but then we didn't really hear back until yesterday. We we're like, hey, we have a a patch incoming; it'll release soon. Uh, hoping to address these fixes and whatnot." Like okay, cool. Like uh, hopefully you know that'll come out either before like you know launch or very 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 like shortly after it launches. So like 
the amount of like people who suffer it is very minimal and whatnot. Like, like you know, I I'm just doing my due diligence as like reviewing the games. Like, this is my experience with the game. This is what I suffered and whatnot. This is just letting people get in, uh, get informed about it. And you know, I'm there, and hopefully we can help. You know, people make an, an informed decision, and at the same time, hopefully uh, uh, inform the people who are in charge of this, uh, who are distributing the game, saying, "Hey, do you have anything? Uh, you know." For us to help ensure people that they'll get the best experience as possible without, you know, any any sort of issues or hiccups like this and whatnot. But yeah, I mean, uh, I'm really, 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 really excited for more people to play this game and to uh, talk about. It. There's a lot to talk about this game, um, but it's it's hard. It's very difficult to talk about this game without spoiling it outright because there's a lot of there's a lot of, like I'm kind of it's surprising for a yeast game that like. You go into this, it's like, wow, I really don't want to spoil like the narrative and the story of this East game because the the things that happen in it and the way things are presented in it, it's like it's very shocking. It's very surprising. I'm I'm really glad that I'm I, one. I'm really glad that like uh, Alcom took the a uh, East game in this direction, and and also I'm really glad that they condensed the overall long, all length of the game. I know in East Eight, it's a great game, but to to me, it felt like. The hour count and it just like kind of dragged on. Like you got a lot, you got a lot of hours out of East Eight, but a lot of it was like it kind of kind of dragged its feet at points. Uh, despite its enjoyable gameplay, with East Nine still very enjoyable, but they were able to like condense it in very smart ways. So like it doesn't feel like anything. There, there's never really any like quote unquote downtime in the and how you're actually progressing it. Like they, like interesting things are constantly happening in East Nine. And it's really nice to replay too because if you're Final just skipping the cutscenes, you can get it done like ten hours or less. So that's nice. So I've been pretty quiet as you guys have been talking over this, just because like it's been really. Just, I've just been content just sitting here listening to you three discuss it. We have obviously uh, James who has played through this game a while, a while back, and then uh, Josh who has played through it recently, and then Adam who has a lot of affinity to the series, and then even George chimed in. So I feel kind of like the uh, the outsider a bit. I have played some East games, but I guess. That, I guess they've always been uh, kind of fire and forget for me. Like I play through them and I don't really think about them that much, which is, you know, it's, it's, it's not, it's not like, it's not really like a negative feeling. I enjoyed what I played. I guess I just don't really, uh, really adhere to them as strongly. Yeah, that's fine. You know, like I, I think, I think these games are really cool. Just like, as just, as just like gameplay experiences too. It's like, oh, I just want to like play like a really fast action RPG. Like, even if you don't I mean, care about the story, that's like, that's still fine. That's how most game. East games are, really. Like, yep. <laughs> I mean, I, and I don't mean that in a bad way. Like, yeah. Falgana is like a really great pick up and play game. It's really cool. It's really fun. It's got great it's music, great it's style. Like Fifteen hours it, long. It right? really like, yeah, yeah. But it, it is over in like 10, 15 hours. Um, so it's not like something that you played for weeks at a time and really sticks with you, I guess. But it, they're still great games. Yeah. So. And and I was I, always, I was always of the mindset that like the party based East games. There's certain, there's a certain, I don't know, old school mindset where it's like the solo adult yeast, like yeast one through uh, what six before Salsetta and seven, like those are those are the only ones that matter. Everything else is garbage. You know, people like to dial it up to eleven and twelve just to get a response. And I was kind of like, I don't like the party games as much, but I did enjoy Issei quite. Even though Issei was one of those games where even though I have like. I could probably list out a bunch of things that I didn't like about it, but the whole package I still really enjoyed. Like everything that I list, but I don't like the characters. I don't like 
uh, or I don't like a certain character. I don't like a certain story beat. I think the idea of like this eternal recurrence, resetting of the world or whatever is, it's kind of, it's, it's been in Mass Effect. It's been in, uh, in Xenosaga. It's been in so many different places that it has to do it like really well for it to be, for me to be interested in that general thread of, of narrative. And so, but then I, I think back on it and like, you know what? I really did enjoy it quite a fair bit. So I surely should be excited about East nine and I will probably play it when it comes to PC, hopefully not too long after the, yeah, this release just now. Not. Yeah. And yeah, like yeah. Adam said, a lot of times I just want to like, I really do. I'm, I'm the sort of person that a game has to have some skill-based element to it. And obviously East games, if you bump up the difficulty, have that in spades. So, um, Oh yeah, I'm, I guess now that you mentioned it, like right out of the gate, this game has like six difficulty levels: as easy, normal, hard, nightmare, inferno, and lunatic. So there you go. Make it as hard as or as easy as you want. I like how when you get to hard. I like how when you get to hard mode, is like the third easiest difficulty. Like what do we? How do we tear this up? <laughs> uh, inferno, <laughs> lunatic. Uh, yeah. But, yeah, I, I have no doubt that I will uh, enjoy this game, to, and but I kind of I kind of enjoy it in a in a very specific way. Uh, I, but, I'm very interested to see like how we're, we're, we're all all three of you, Adam, uh, you, and George, like fall in this game. But once you guys get get your hands on it, I know George is already uh, like going to start it uh, soon. Um, and I really, I I want to talk about these characters so much. They're great. They're awesome. I really like just like how how. Falcom really nailed it with this. I, I want to see a thesis about how this is similar and different to uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in Manhattan or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, I'll try. I'll try. <laughs> who the, uh, look, uh, uh, in my head, I know who the Donatello is in this game, but I want to see who, who you uh, think it land is. On. We did have. Um, I don't want to move the boat too quickly. Are we. Final thoughts yeah, on these nine? Uh, East Nine, it's you know another excellent entry in uh, the East series. I really, really enjoyed it. I love it. And hopefully, um, the um, the uh, yeah. crashing issues are are a footnote, like Adam said. Yeah, and not too long. I, I, th- I think. Yeah, I think. I think the only big like like things that really bothered me about it is um, obviously the crashing issues that sucked. Like about like in thirty three hours of my gameplay, I suffered at least I, I, in my in my head. I, I stopped counting after ten, so I'm saying at least ten. It's probably more around like. 15 or 16 probably um but uh also just well as you play through it and as you play through the chapters like in, like i was mentioning earlier it does get a bit formulaic and like how you, you know exactly how a chapter is generally going to play out in terms of like what you're going to be doing in it and i wish there was more um variety in how the chapters flowed and what happened to so yeah, like, it did sound a little bit video right. gamey, where it's like you yeah. enter a new area and you'll get one exactly one new party member in this chapter, sort of thing. Is what yeah, it sounded like yeah, and, and like you know they have to kind of uh, like fit the story into that mo- like mold and like kind of adhere to it and whatnot. That's, that's like it's one of those. It's like yeah, it's you know it's not it's not it's not the worst thing in the world, but it's definitely something. Mm-hmm. But so, other than that, I really. We did have one other review that went up, and we probably won't spend a ton of time on this because I do think that James has talked about it at length last week. Uh, but he did formalize his published review for Utuara Mono Prelude to the Fallen coming out on Steam. So I don't know if you just had any final thoughts as you wrapped up uh, writing well, writing I, down 
probably what you'd already verbalized last week. Yeah, basically everything I said last week is all I really had to say. <laughs> but it's it's like if I wanted to play this game, this is the only way I can now, right? Unless I unless yeah. I track down a physical disc. Yeah, unless you wanted to track down a physical disc or cart for uh, the uh, Vita PS4 version. Well, no, I mean. It's still up digitally for the first game. So you can still get it on like a PS4 Vita for the first game. But if you're going to play it in the interest of playing the rest of the series, it's much easier to get in on PC now because the whole series is available on PC. Whereas Mask Inception, Mask of Truth aren't available digitally in North America on PS4 and Vita anymore because they've been delisted. So. And to, to clarify for people, like, uh... First game meaning prelude to the fallen because like you know even though mask of truth and or mask of deception mask of truth came out technically first here those are two and three not the first Utawara Ramon. Yep. And then uh, so James wrote up his review, which is kind of like a report on the PC version, uh, how it fixes a few things, et cetera. A little bit more technical than a typical review, but just just a quick little read to see how the PC version stacks up. Seems like the answer in general is pretty good. Hey man, like you know, Steam is really getting good, uh, good at like just completing series. You got Underwater Ray Romano here, then they got Yakuza just recently. Like, <laughs> three, four, five remastered. Right, Mono, God damn it! <laughs> that that's an ancient anime meme. <laughs> yeah, but then, like just recently this week, they got three, four, uh, the Yakuza three, four, and five remastered finally up on the Steam as well, and then six is coming. Uh, in March, like uh, th- things are finally getting completed. Like series are finally getting completed on Steam, just like the whole package. And the their um three, four, and five remaster are also up on Game Pass as well for people who are sub to that. And uh, just wanted to say, Yakuza games pretty good on in general. And we've got even Persona Four and Persona Five Strikers on Steam. So before you know it, uh, the whole the whole series. Oh, if, if, wish, man, wish with the Persona Three remake that has. Both protagonists, <laughs> controllable party members, and all that. It's coming. Yeah, Finally, and, and, yeah. And it has the same graphics as like that three, uh, Persona Three dancing game. And the last feature that we want to shout out is uh, one that's not a scored review, but something that Alex Donaldson put up about Mass Effect Andromeda. The title being "Mass Effect Andromeda isn't as bad as its reputation suggests." So this was kind of a contentious opinion op-ed that he put up about basically heralding the unsung qualities of Mass Effect Andromeda. Uh, I, I'm the sort of, I guess, to put it bluntly, I don't really agree with him, but I, I respect it sort of thing. Um, first of all, who here, has anyone here besides me played Mass Effect Andromeda? I remember I, remember I had every intention to buy, to buy it until I heard about it. And then it's like, I, oh. I've been meaning to play it for a long time. <laughs> I played the first three and then I just never played Andromeda. I had it. I was one hundred percent gonna get it until uh, until I started hearing what it like uh, how it was. I'm like, oh, never mind. <laughs> so my general opinion of this is that people, because the way that our social media is kind of organized in clips and gifs and tweets and whatever, is that it is very easy, I think, to zero hyper focus on animation bugs and oddities. And when Mass Effect Andromeda came out, that was its death knell. Like the facial animations, the weird uh, rigging of the character models. That was all every anyone shared for months. There was that and, that, that, that that cutscene where like that the the gun model was facing the other way in in a certain cutscene. That that's the thing that stuck out to me. 
It's like, oh, like this person's like holding this gun, but the the gun is facing them. And oh, I remember that one, yeah, that yeah. And for me, I guess, like I, I notice these things, but I don't really like dwell on them to the extent that I feel like my peers do. And I don't mean like you guys; I just mean like in general, people on social media sharing and comments and interviews, especially because it's I all, played mass. Go ahead. It's a lot harder. I think what you're getting at, and I'll let you continue. But, like, it's a lot harder to show off things like the overall structure of the game, maybe, like, the progression from beginning to end, you know, storylines or characters or things like that. It, and even if there's critis- even if there's flaws there, it's just way easier to show, like, huh, this person's neck looks funny. Yeah, so I played this game, I believe it was, like, patch 1.07 or something like that. And it was a lot of that stuff that went viral early on was already fixed. I'm like, all right, it's been polished up. I mean, is it a good game now? Long story short, I still didn't like it. But again, kind of for reasons that I felt were a little bit less superficial. Mainly, I played in 2016, 2017. Um, I think those are the years. Dragon Quest, it's not Dragon Quest, Dragon Age, Inquisition, and Mass Effect Andromeda. And I felt like where both of these games kind of fumbled was in their quest design where there's kind of two different this is this is diluting it down a bit but there's kind of like two different avenues of quest design there's the deus ex human Revo- sorry deus ex oh, mankind divided style of quest where there is a small number of very well made as an opinion but very like they're bespoke like they're bespoke quests they're not they're they're, they're the opposite of the mmo do a of b x of y like side stories and i remember mankind divided specifically like it was literally like there are 10 side quests and there are only 10 that is yeah and and they will and they will flesh into the world they will introduce new characters they will have dialogue and voice acting they will have unique locations it's like the opposite of an mmo type quest and then i feel like dragon quest inquisition dragon quest you can see where my mindset is at least i'm catching myself (laughs) dragon age inquisition uh and mass effect andromeda they have like in general, the worst quest design I've ever seen. It's very like, go to this planet, and every single planet has a hidden base underneath it where you do the uh, ancient race of this area of the galaxy. It's not the Protheans, it's something else, I forget what it's called. And you you collect a thing from each of them, and you've got you've done 304 and 404, and each place you go, like, I just remember very the top... Cut and paste. I just remember, I believe it's the top left, one corner of the UI, it was constantly like number counters. Like you've done X of Y, you've, you're 90% done with this thing. And it just felt like chores upon chores upon chores. And the combat was good. The art and graphics are, I think, the best of the series, which is kind of like the d- default basically because it's the newest entry and it's built on a better engine. Um, but it just wasn't fun to play. Like the short term, I guess, the short term, I hate this hurt, I hate loop. There it is. I'll spit out loop. The short-term loop uh, is good. Like the combat encounters, just fighting the, uh, the it's kind of like a mesh of the, the Mass Effect 2 and 3 style over the shoulder, third-person shooter uh, with some of the RPG elements of the first game, I think more effectively uh, threshed in. But you're doing it it's but all of that is kind of meaningless if you're doing the most boring mundane stuff with it, where it's just like, oh, I'm going to another 
I, I, I feel like I'm failing myself here because they're not Protheans. It's some other like ancient race. They just kind of retread that story beat where it's like, who was here before us and why did they vanish sort of thing? So it just like, it has those, it has those narrative fumblings. It has this uh, quests that I didn't think were very good. But anyways, I still Alex, mean to, I still mean Alex thought it was good. <laughs> Uh, yeah. it, it does. It does seem like one thing that people tend to be more positive on. Obviously, not everyone, but people do seem to like the combat of Andromeda, and like that seems to be what people, if they're going to praise any component of it, that seems to be most likely. So, yeah. So, I guess when I just feel like the pervading theory or the pervading. Um, dialogue around Andromeda still harkens back to those animation issues that it had early on. And I just feel like that's so like minute at this point. Like it doesn't matter. Like that's not why the game, I think that's not why I dislike the game. Uh, but anyways, I feel bad just kind of digging at this game when the, 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 the crust, the crux of the article was that it wasn't as bad as its reputation suggests. So <laughs> I mean, it's okay. It's we're allowed, we're, people are allowed to have opinions that are against the grain. I mean, I have, I have many and to, to talk about the animation things, like first impressions are, are, are everything to a lot of people. You know, like when you when you play a game at launch, you want it to work. You know, and and if it if it shows that if it shows that like it shipped in like hot, you know, and like for example, my my time at East East Nine, that like those crashing issues might not be a thing like a week or two from now when it releases. But you know, first impressions are everything. You know, and, and like my first play through that game. That will always be the thing that sticks out for me when going through that game, because it's it's like, hey, I remember I really like this game, but the the thing that will stick in my mind for a, a good chunk it's like uh, that game crashed a lot when I played it, you know. So yeah, Mass Effect Andromeda, it's still probably my least favorite game of the series. Uh, if you want to hear a more positive take on it, Alex did put up his feature about it. Even though, even in, like in his feature, he talks about where it still falls short. So I guess it is kind of a very like tempered. He's not he's not trying to say that it's the best of the series, really. He's just saying that it might have been overly criticized, I suppose. So I'm not going to say whether that argument's correct or incorrect, because I don't know if you can definitively say that, but we've got it up on the website. Interesting op-ed. It's always good to yeah. see these. It's uh, I guess and, and it's an interesting opinion. It's 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 better to be interesting and substantiate yourself rather than just try to be like, this is the correct opinion everyone can agree on. And there's absolutely no discussion to be had. So. And other than that, I think that covers all the features that we had. We had those four reviews. We, 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 okay, before, before we move on, like James, George, and I have to talk about this Balan Wonderworld demo before we move uh, on. So, okay. Okay. Balan Wonderworld, more like Balan Wonderworld. Okay, so the uh, Square Enix, uh, Square Enix uh, just this past week, uh, <laughs> uh, released a demo for Yuji Naka's next game. Yuji Naka, obviously, very famous you know, for his work at Knights. Uh, other popular stuff way back when so you know the this is one of those uh projects that like a good chunk of us had had an eye on it's like oh he's making another game the Enix gave him a chance he even made like this new company to make this game and named it after the game like uh like the new company was like balan company and uh, they're really it looks like they're really like you know aiming high for this game and looking to knock it out of the park you know and we, we want a good like 3d platformer that's you know i'm always down for good 3d platformers then this demo came out um 
All right. Who, who wants right. to? So, yeah, I'll, let me just say, pretend I don't know much about this game because okay. I don't. Just like, start right. at the top. Like, what okay. is the game supposed to be and what is it actually? So the premise of this game, from what I can understand, is there's this uh, either just like this, this boy or girl uh, to, 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 to be your character. At the, like, the opening cinematic of this game is that they like enter this like wonder house of sorts, kind of like almost Charlie the Chocolate Factory esque, um, and they meet this like mysterious um, figure named Balin, and like it's like, kind of like a, uh, a ho- not a house of horrors, but like a house of like weird things that they're. It's like a circus. Oh my like god! You're saying yeah, like they're kind of they're kind of being transported to, like different worlds, and I forgot like these what these worlds are meant to represent because that like uh, believe it or not. The thing about this game is that there is no spoken dialogue in this game, and how they're gonna pre- plan to present this story is that there's a no- a separate novel is also planned for the release release alongside this game, which will explain the story more because it has no spoken dialogue outside of the opening cutscene. I shit fuck? you not. I shit you not. That's 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 what that, that's what they're planning for this game. Ah, the Final Fantasy fifteen approach. <laughs> well, we're lucky FF fifteen actually had a story and and presented it with voices, you know, or at least at least you know we could actually follow it. This one's like I don't really know what. So there's like yeah, that, that, that's weird because even like PS one era platformers had dialogue. I mean, yeah, some they weren't. It wasn't voiced, obviously, but there was some. Now all I'm wondering is, is that Billy Hatcher have more of a story than I was supposed to know, and it was just not. <laughs> oh shit! Is there really a Billy Hatcher novel? I need to go look into that. But okay, so they they uh there are two like the two first stages I think were in this demo. There's like this world one, and then there's like stage one, stage two to this world. Oh my god! Okay, so let let. The, Number one, whoever okay. decided that the default or really any any of the jumps in this game are okay in a 3D platformer has no business working on 3D platformers. Straight so, up. Okay, yeah, so what's the, the problem with jumping? What is the problem with jumping? So so, so here's like here's the basic gameplay of the game. So the whole shtick of this game is you know, you you find these costumes across the level. They're like hidden, like they're they're not hit, even hidden, they're in plain sight. They're like contained like in these like shard chests, and there's like always a key right by them. And this key is respawnable for some reason. So like literally the first like level of the game, there's like uh, a costume and a key right beside it. So you take this key and put it to unlock this first costume. And this costume is like kind of I think like a tiger esque costume. So whenever you jump, you do a spin, and so so. You you get that, and then the key respawns for some reason. It's like okay, because like uh, the other costumes across that level will still have a coinciding key, but I, so I don't understand why this key respawns. So you can just stack up on keys if you want if you want to, I guess for some reason. Now, also the the gameplay is here's your controls. You use your left stick to move, uh, right stick to move move the camera. Uh, your face buttons all do the same thing. They all jump. There, the I think I think some of your trigger buttons also jump. That is the control scheme. Well, that's just, just classic Sonic. We're on A, B, and C on Genesis control. They're all jumped. So the, the, yes, but also there's nothing that re- in the level design that really like makes you feel good about like 
controlling it at all. It even made me, uh, George and I, woozy. You, you can go on, George, about like why we felt woozy about this game too, like well, as we played. When I, I did the first level, and I was like, "This is this is pretty. It's okay. Like I, I don't see why people hate it. It's just kind of, it's sort of boring. But like you know, some people might enjoy that. It's kind of slow. It's first level. Leave it alone." I then got to the second level, and within a minute of playing it, I was like, "Oh my god, I feel like I feel genuinely sick. I feel motion sick because I don't know if it's going to be the case in every level, but in the second level of the game, it 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 it's sort of I want to say it's like Mario Galaxy, but like done really badly. So like as you're going through the level, it's cur- like the screen is curving towards the end, and it just like it's it's important. It's the same thing." As with why the platforming feels so bad, it's hard to describe something that's like game feel and how something makes you feel. But it was just like I, I had to stop. I was just like, "This is not worth it. This this boring platformer is not worth me being sick." Like, screw that, man. <laughs> yeah, and also, so aside from just like general movement feeling bad and like and like your your your, your default movement is like, or really any of your movement feels slow. Like the there's like not really much momentum to it. There's not really it doesn't feel responsive. So on top of all that, like kind of just being boring. Everything feels disjointed because I'd be fine with floatiness if that worked into the jump. Because the way the jump works is that it doesn't preserve any momentum. It, it basically grinds to a halt. The way it works, like your jump feels like it goes half the distance. It feels like it should go, and. I'd be fine if it was floaty, if the jump itself was floaty and it didn't feel like you were basically just hitting a brick wall in midair. Yeah. So and- when you uh, when you jump, is there like any, how do I put this? So you can either jump from like a standing still position or jump while you're running. And it sounds like, it sounds like if you're moving along and you click jump, you're like, your character will like stop and then jump. No, not like that. It's just like, you will move a little bit in midair. But basically, there's like there's like it, it, feels wrong. it, it, it just yeah. feels off. Like, like yeah, it, like you think about like good jumps in video games. Like think about like Mario jumps. You know, it feels like good to jump. You get get you get a satisfying amount of like inertia momentum in that jump. In this game, it just feels totally off. It just it it what you see and how how you're how you think you're supposed to go totally betrays like how you what what happens when you click the jump button. It just it just feels off, you know. So uh, aside from like you know this gimmick of like finding costumes and switching between them to do different stuff, like the first two is like this: when you jump, you spin, and then the second one, like you hold down A, and then you kind of float in midair, and like you know, to to like cross like you know more longer platforming games, which is like okay, whatever. Like and the whole and the whole thing is like you have to switch between costumes to like navigate the level. So let alone aside from like you know. The costume switching animation taking too long. It takes it takes two seconds longer than it should be. It really yeah. should be instantaneous. Yeah. Like you always spin around and like switch to another costume. It's like okay, that's a whatever. So there's like another gameplay mechanic in it where you there are sometimes you see these um, like collectibles or not even collectibles like items where like Balan himself or itself. Uh, oh, yeah, they are. yeah. The, so you like you get transported to this like instance, or like, oh, okay. You, you think that like, okay, they're gonna try to do like maybe a knights type level with like Balin, okay, and you can like move around. It's like no. What the basic um, idea of this like these instances are is Balin is 
like moving to like battle this creature, but the way you interact with it is there are like silhouettes of Balin that'll like come in from off screen, and then you have to match up that silhouette that's moving very slowly to like you have to hit the button right when it matches the pose of what Balin is doing, or there'll be multiple like after images of Balin coming from de- uh, from different parts of the screen. And then you have to like mash a button as they're doing it, and then uh, then it'll give you like a it's kind of like a basically a QTE that feels like shit, and it's presented to you like shit because like you you never really know what the timing is to like match that pose because things are happening, Valen uh, is doing things, and you're not really quite sure like what pose you're really supposed to like match it up with because it's so vague. It just it just feels like shit. Like why is it there? I, I ran into it and I was like, I was like. It's just so weird. I don't know. It's I, I was so like interested like in like your grade of like like excellent, great, good, or bad. It's like it's like it's like a QTE rhythm game that just doesn't work at all. Yeah, I it's I've no lost. Right. I was just gonna say that I've I've just lost all interest in the game. Like it was gonna be one of those I probably will pick up and play through. Like I enjoy my 3D platformers, but just just after this, I'm like. Just not interested. This is like I, the worst demo I've played for an incoming game I was interested in for in a while, dude. Yeah. I was like, all right, yeah, the, I'll give it a shot. I don't like, I, like you know, uh, I wonder what where I'll come up uh, on it because I heard you no, know, a lot of people, uh, <laughs> but a lot of people I hear like virtually almost everyone I, I, I I've known to speak about the de- playing the demo, like I, like they didn't have anything anything any good things to say about it. I'm like, um, okay, well, it's weird. I'll, I'll give it a shot. Like I I don't know what's Really going on, and man, I I was super interested in this game, and now I'm just like, never mind, man. Yeah, it's worth mentioning or noting that this game is supposed to release in March, like for sixty dollars. They're asking yeah. sixty dollars for this game, and you played. You're like, what the fuck? Yeah, it's, it's, this isn't like the Bravely Default Two demo, which was clearly like you know, like several months before release, and like wondering about feedback and like, okay, we can address these things, sort of, you know. Like almost like a beta, but this is like this is supposed to be you know a demo to drum up interest for the game releasing in just like I don't know like six weeks or something like that. Um, so I haven't downloaded this demo, but I am looking at some footage on it on YouTube right now that I just pulled up, and even without a controller in my hand, it looks very floaty. Like it looks like it's the whole game is built yeah. as if you're playing in a 3D platformer's final ice level. Like, there's no traction yeah. or anything like that. Like, the character's feet are just kind of, like, slipping everywhere, it seems like. It's not, and yet somehow slower than a, a typical ice level in a platformer, too. <laughs> ah, man. But, yeah, if, if, you guys, if, any, if any of our listeners are interested, like, definitely, you know, the, the demo's out on all the platforms, the Switch, PS4, or PS Sony platforms, Xbox, Xbox platforms, PC. You know, try it out, see if there's stuff you're interested. But man, it's it's tough, dude. I really wanted to like this game. It it looked really good, but like the 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 best thing you can say I can say about this game is the opening cinematic is really really cool and visually great, and like it's really cool that like they they give you like these I think four preset appearances for both the boy and the girl, and like whatever appearance you choose for them, that's reflected in that cinematic, and that's really cool. But it feels like they blew their entire budget on that. On that one thing, it just looks really nice. But man, the rest of the game, or at least from what the demo shows, this this game needs work. This game needs, and they need 
figure they need to figure out fast whether they should delay it or not i don't know i don't even know for delay like i don't think like to think of any games irretrievable but i I just just don't think it looks good i just don't think it plays good it sounds sort of okay it looks really weird i'm just gonna ask so which versions of the demo did you guys play i played the steam version which one did you play george the ps5 one Okay, the Switch version has horrible performance issues on top of everything. Oh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I think, but I think, I think the Switch, PS4, and maybe the older like uh, Xbox One, older versions of it. Like, I, I didn't hear great things about its performance either. The Switch but, version uh, has like it's not just like the frame rate that's bad enough on its own. It has stuttering, like freezes, uh, hitching, along with all of the morphing of the environments. It's not good. Yeah. <laughs> Yep. What happened? What happened to this game? And this is and this and this is like and this is like the big thing that Yuji Naka like uh, stake to like the like you know this is the one the one shot that Square Enix is uh, is giving him and he named this entire company after this. I don't know, man. I don't know. I'll, I'll be honest. I didn't really have super high expectations in the first place because Billy Hatcher is an all right three platformer, but I don't think. I don't think Yuji Naka has ever been in charge of a 3D platformer that was like objectively good. But, but at least, but at least Billy Hatcher, like at least you can like play, you can you can control it. Like it's like okay, like these controls are, are at least like you know they they're responsive. But they're just they like, work. Yeah, they work. <laughs> yeah, this game, is yeah, like, I guess they work. I mean, <laughs> it, I mean I, the. I feel like Yuji Naka is best when his games aren't direct platformers. Like, I really like Nights in the Dreams. It's probably my favorite game of his. Mm. I really um, like Rodea's Sky Soldier, which isn't really a 3D platformer. It's kind of a bit different. At least the Wii version. Don't play the Wii or 3DS version. Seriously, the man himself even says the Wii version is the only one he wants people to play. But, like, those are good games. And Billy Hatcher's all right, but this is just... Man, what happened? What happened? (laughs) I kind of want to play out of like morbid curiosity now, though. Like, if if anything, that might help some sales. Like, I, I'm sure there are people out there who are like, yeah, this could get worse. This could I'm be not going to pay money for this game. I'm is it going to be on Game Pass? If it's going to be on Game Pass, maybe. I don't think. Is so. it worth it though? Is it sometimes, worth it? Though? Sometimes you got to swim in the muck to learn where the uh, where the bottom is. <laughs> <laughs> right, so. Uh, Anything else we've played this week that we're a little bit more uh, positive on? Well, I've been enjoying Final Fantasy 3 a bit more. Where are you at? So, so, uh, I think I'm getting closer to the end. Uh, My team is like around level 42 for each of them. I've fought... I'm basically going into the Cave of Shadows, but I've already fought Odin. I've fought... um, Bahamut, I fought Leviathan, so I've been going and doing the uh, kind of optional bosses and whatnot. Uh, I definitely think the later jobs are a lot more fun to mess around with than the early game jobs. I really like Dark Knight. Dragoon's a ton of fun, especially if you just go YOLO and give it two, like, two lances, two spears, and basically just jump. It's like, man, that's a lot of damage. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, I, I, it's kind of, well, it, it makes sense that the game opens up once you get to the proper overworld because, well, and all that. But 
there's still some issues I have with it. I don't think that the game needed you to have three different types of airships that do different things. Why can't the Invincible also have the same speed as the uh, Nautilus? Why can't the Invincible also have the underwater capabilities of the Nautilus? Why do I have to keep track of both of them at the same time? It's annoying. It's really not great. <laughs> um, so, you know, Final Fantasy IV kind of does that too. Not as bad. <laughs> uh... <laughs> but um, my, my opinions on Final Fantasy III are kind of clouded because, and I think most people, this is probably the case, played five first, and five sort of is just uh, mechanically, anyway, is just sort of like refined, better version. <laughs> so I'll say a lot of things. Like, playing through Final Fantasy III, I can kind, of, I have more of an appreciation for Bravely Default for some yeah. of the things it does, like. Even just the simple thing of being able to determine like what the um, what the spawn is for uh, random battles. So if you want to grind, it's just like okay, you can just keep fighting enemies like really quickly. Whereas in Final Fantasy three, it's like there's uh, there's moments in Final Fantasy three where you have to grind that you just don't have to grind nearly as much in Final Fantasy one and two. It's like God. <laughs> So my memory, like, of specific events in Final Fantasy III is a little bit cloudy, and I'm just going to blame that on the game being... I played it twice, once on PSP and once on PC, and it's just kind of bland. So it kind of mushes together for me. But I do remember that last dungeon specifically is a bit of a... It is a bit of a jump, and you kind of... And I do spend some time, like, okay, I just need to, like, battle a few enemies, kind of rip my... You know right away whether you can uh, tackle Final Dungeon in FF3 or not. Yeah. Yeah, I have uh, learned though that there is like a trick for uh, grinding out the final dungeon in Final Fantasy III that I'm gonna definitely take advantage of. But it's like, man, it's like the job level grind and regular grind, and then I, I, I don't know, man. I feel like there's some aspects of it that are cool, like the optional bosses being able to explore underwater. But it feels like, for better or worse, Final Fantasy II had a vision for what it wanted to be and everything kind of points towards that vision and it's focus. Whereas Final Fantasy 3, it feels like it's trying to do, be a bunch of different types of games at once and they don't necessarily mesh and it just doesn't feel as cohesive as 1 or 2. This is this is coming to uh, all leading to uh, James's uh, opinion op-ed of Final Fantasy 2 isn't as bad as its reputation suggests. Yes, uh, that is you're true. joking, but I'm actually writing that. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, here's basically the uh, title for that is Final Fantasy II has issues, but the, the things that people complain about kind of proves that most people haven't actually played it. That's a long, <laughs> but probably accurate title. Yeah. Um, Final Fantasy III, I am enjoying it more. I'm actually enjoying it, whereas like in the beginning half, it was just like, eh. But, yeah, definitely my least favorite of the original trilogy. Maybe I'd feel a little bit different if I was playing the NES version. Maybe. But it's just like, I don't I, know, I, I say the NES version is better. Um, I think largely just it's like not as bloated, I guess, uh, in terms of battles and stats and jobs and, and requirements, maybe. I'm not exactly sure. And, of course, it's got a sprite style versus a 3D style. but. I haven't played it, that. It has one. been nice playing it on uh, Vita with a uh, G patch so it's like running at native Vita resolution, even though it's a PSP game. And that's something mm -hmm. that's worth, worth, I guess, some novelty. 
I don't know. Um, I've heard that Final Fantasy IV is one of the um, well, most well, a bunch of people I've talked to. They say that Final Fantasy IV through six are all much better than Final Fantasy one through three. So I'm interested to see how I feel about that. Four is kind of a it's almost seminal to be honest. Like what what an RPG could be. Um, it has a few issues. Like I'm probably not on, as high on it as a lot of people are, but it's it's, it's like a turning point in like literally like the history of RPGs and what they could do. It's got a lot a much higher story focus and things like that. Um, so it's it's, it's kind of like the template that which most Final Fantasy draws to. I mean, you could say that about a lot of these early games, but I feel like four is kind of like the at the peak there. Where you might some aspects of one, two, and three are like setting off the groundwork, but this is where it like really started coming into form. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's going to be interesting because like I kind of just tore through one and two, and then three I wasn't feeling it. I wonder uh, how my pacing will be if I end up liking four a lot more. I hope I do because I'm I'm going to play these regardless. It's just. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, um, next week, hopefully I'll finish Final Fantasy 3 and maybe have started Final Fantasy 4. Who knows? We'll look forward to it. All right, the only game that I've really played this week is a bit of the Yakuza Remastered Collection on PC. Uh, I'm not really like far enough to make like a big sweeping declaration of how I feel about it. I will just say that I was expecting the drop off from having played like a lot of the more recent games like zero Kwame, Kwame two and seven. And then three is a PS three game at heart. And I was expecting that to feel really awkward. And in a lot of ways it didn't, I guess the remaster itself touches up the game so that it still looks pretty good, especially in like the character models, at least in their faces, maybe more so than their like rigging in gameplay. Um, and then like, even though it's been a while since I played Kwame two, like the way that three starts out, it, it it really is a direct sequel. Like it follows up on story events. I'm like, oh yeah, I remember this happening. Like this feels natural. It doesn't feel like a big gap has occurred. Uh, even though I've played a few games, like in the meantime, out of order with throwing in Yakuza Seven in there. So it just felt like a natural continuation, and in most respects, with the only exception being the gameplay, the uh, the brawler style in the PS3 game. At least in Yakuza Three, I haven't really. T- I, I only opened up four and five to like test them out. Um, it feels like really stiff and stilted and mm-hmm. yeah. it, it's yeah. just, and then even the it's progression big. where you like level up your heat or your soul or whatever feels really kind of bare bones or you just yeah. feel like they like the, uh, I forget the specific differences between zero Kwame and Kwame two, but they have more what it's, what is akin to like tech trees or whatever. Um, yeah, zero, you that. Had to, like, your, like all the yen that you get because of like how how that was structured, you got, always had like a lot of money, so you put money into your stats. Kiwami one was like a more of a standard skill point tech tree, and like and then Kiwami two was like you actually had like stats on there, like actually putting the numbers to your stats and like getting um, all- allocating those into different things. But yeah, in uh, in Yakuza three, it's literally just basically four stats that you pump exp into and like one of them will give you more heat actions one of them give you more health uh basically that's basically kind of it <laughs> so very very simple very very much not an rpg not really um 
But story-wise and presentation-wise, it really, like, I was kind of scared that it would feel like a step back. And, you know, it objectively is, but it's it's masked and, you know, dolled up in enough ways, especially if you can, like, crank the resolution up on PC, that it, it still looks and comes across fine. Like, you, as long as you're, like, understand why. Like, if you're expecting it to look like Kiwami 2, and you're like, this doesn't look as good, I hate it. Like, well, come on, be reasonable. Of course it doesn't. It's a PS3 game. Uh <laughs> Uh, but uh, I'm enjoying it. I really do like how low key it is at the start. Like two of the things that you're doing at the start of Yakuza Three are like just resolving a dispute between a bunch of uh, orphans about wh- who potentially might have stolen some money from another orphan, and then like <laughs> chasing a dog throughout the city uh, that reminds one of the children of their old uh, family pet. Like it's just I like how. It starts. It allows itself to start out like these really low key human stories, and where uh, Kiryu really falls into his father uncle role. Uh, and obviously, like I've I've gotten far enough where I've gotten back into Kamurocho, and as an as any Yakuza game does, it's I can already tell it's starting to ramp up. But I do like that. You, like even Okinawa itself, where you start out, is like really quaint and kind of smaller and just simpler and i think i think it fits with the story because obviously kiryu was trying to step away from the yakuza and just have like a quiet normal life for once but of course the world can't allow that to happen (laughs) so uh i I really entries yeah i really liked yakuza 3 not necessarily gameplay wise but story wise and narrative wise i liked it it just has like a really good vibe. I, I wish almost that more games allowed themselves to purposely shrink the scope of it, where it doesn't always have to be world beating, you know, universe threatening. And yeah, I guess Yakuza has never really been like that because it's always about a particular location in, in Japan. But e- but even then, it's at the start of this game, it shrinks it even more, where it's just like here's here's a story about, uh, you know, orphans and children and like their hardships and what what happens if they're if they're if their caretaker is struggling to like meet their needs because the orphanage is in the is in the way of people with other ambitions you know physically as its location on this on this you know island in, in Japan it's just i like how simple it is it's just very straightforward yeah, very quaint it, it reminds you of like you know if you have like a nephew or a niece or like uh like a, a son or a daughter like anyone younger than you really that like you what they view as like the struggles of their life like what what were the matters that things that like matter most them what they value the most and like what's really like kind of like the big turning points in their life up to that point like when you're all grown up like to that that's relatively like you know in the bigger picture of things how you view it it's like oh it's it's nothing that's nothing Uh, and i think and i think you can make like compelling stories out of that uh, these simple like day-to-day things yeah and it's it hasn't really been like yakuza i don't know if this is something that kiwami or zero like really spearheaded but there's always this thing where it's like the side stories are really wacky but then the main story is really gripping and yakuza 3 so far hasn't been that wacky it's been a bit more grounded which i think i kind of enjoy that it pulled back from that a little bit like there, it still has a bit of it where um like there's, I had this one sub story where a person was nervous and couldn't couldn't ask the clerk at a burger joint on a date, so he kept mm-hmm. going to the counter to try to ask her on a date, but couldn't get it out of his mouth. He kept just ordering like burgers and shakes yeah. instead. <laughs> and before he's done, he's just eating like four or five of them. <laughs> and it's just like, yeah, that's that's silly, but it's not as silly 
as like some of the stuff in even seven where it's like, now you're fighting a tractor, you know, stuff like that. Like, oh, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. uh, so now you're fighting an oversized vacuum cleaner <laughs> or you're summoning a dominatrix to assist you in battle or whatever. Yeah. It's, it's a little, just- are, are there, are there like any outstanding, like uh PC features or PC settings that uh, stuck out to you? Cause I played this, uh, the Yakuza three, four or five remastered on the, the PS4 releases last year. And uh, they ran at the, they ran at ten eighty sixty. But is there any more to their actual like PC ports that like they offer? It's pretty simple. Um, it has a few caveats, but they're all caveats that like knowing where these games are coming from. I don't like. I don't look at any of these and scoff. It is capped mm-hmm. at sixty FPS. But I guess like for a game that's like that was originally thirty FPS on PS three, and then sixty FPS on the remastered, and then like I'm I guess I'm not really surprised by it, and maybe someone with a, a bit more savvy will be able to like dig and tinker and figure out how to uncap it without affecting like i don't know if this will have that issue where the animations are affected by frame rate or whatever uh but it is capped at 60 uh, i can play it up to 4k uh and you can uh increase the the rendering resolution to effectively super sample it um apparently I, I can't test this myself because i don't have it but apparently it does also support ultra wide so that's always kind of a, a cool okay. little feature that's above and beyond I really want to see that in ultra wide wow I, this, is, this is a bit uh hearsay i haven't tested it myself i've just heard that it does and the pc okay. gaming wiki website which is like a communal uh contributed wiki about what what features a game has or doesn't have on pc uh say that it supports it of course it has like some pre-rendered cutscenes, which of course are not not only can they not display an ultra wide but they can't be up res so every once in a while i'll see something it's like a news report on the television in a cutscene, and it's just very blocky and blurry mm-hmm. because it's not it's at like a, a much lower resolution and for some people that might be like really distracting but i have the mindset where i'm like yeah i know where this came from i understand why <laughs> yeah so and cool. then uh it has a it has a few issues with like borderless and windowed modes. Not really like, like you can't play in a window bigger than 1080p. So if you've got like a 4k monitor, you have to play it in full screen. So just weird, weird things like that. No, no real, like huge deal, deal breakers. Uh, just, just a couple of caveats. Yeah. I'm enjoying myself. It's been, uh, I don't know if I'll play through these back to back to back like you did, but I'll probably keep poking away through a uh, Yakuza three. I'm really, really uh, curious to see how Yakuza Six on uh, in March on Steam. I, I really want to see that in 60 FPS. That that's gonna be like for me. It's gonna be like now that was Beyond the yeah. that was the that's first a, Dragon Engine game, right? Yeah, and it and only was capped at barely 30 FPS on PS4. There, there was like it was like even stuttering a bit on PS4 as well, and ran really somewhat choppy on there. So seeing that at a smooth frame rate at 60, I I really want to go through that game again and like that. And then yeah, so I guess that's my uh my due date. Like, gotta get through four, three, four, and five before March, whatever twenty something. That yeah, because right there. Yep. All right. So with that little uh, footnote out of the way, uh, I will move on to topic section of the uh, podcast. So very beefy front end of this with all the reviews and features and things that we've been playing. As January has kind of trended so far, uh, news and topics are a little bit spotty. Just not a lot going on, not a lot of major themes, just minor announcements. Things are just ramping up. Uh, The biggest one, and I kind of put this at the top, maybe out of a little bit of bias out of my interest in it, but 
uh, Biomutant, which is an open-world RPG that was originally slated to release in, I believe, 2019, has now been dated for this year for May 25th. And this is um, Developer Experiment 101, published by THQ Nordic, open-world RPG that, I don't know, it's just, it's a very, it's... It's not like any other game that I've really seen. It's got a very unique aesthetic. It's got a very unique design of its like protagonist and its characters. And then this game, as this is always kind of like inherently makes the game maybe more interesting than it deserves, but it kind of fell off the face of the map for like a year, uh, kind of like Code Vein did before it finally like resurfaced uh, a few months before it released. And then there was actually a, I forget if it was an interview or if it was just more like a, um, a research piece on, I believe, IGN, where they talked about how they took the year off because mainly, obviously, it was development hardships due to the pandemic and everything else about 2020. But also just because they didn't want to crunch and end up with a they didn't they didn't reference this. I am they didn't want to end up with a cyberpunk where they just left a whole bunch of bugs and issues out because they were trying to hit some sort of date that they really wanted to try to polish up what they had. And even if that meant pushing the game back over a year, they were going to do it. It's so, worth mentioning that in in THQ Nordics. Uh, like annual reports or semi-annual reports they basically would keep mentioning biomutant because there was a lot of interest in it but they were basically casual in the report saying we are still working on it and we are giving the team time to make it effectively is what they were saying so yeah exactly all right so i want to go ahead george go well i was just going to say that i think what's so exciting about biomutant is that well, besides like the stuff we do know, there's so much we don't know. Like apparently, it's like a really large scale thing. I think they've said in the past, like it's a pretty massive game. I, I just it, it's one of those games I just cannot put a pin in it. Why I'm so excited for it, but I just am. I, I think it looks really cool. It just looks different. It doesn't look like this is going to sound like really wishy washy, but it doesn't look like focus tested or something that's like deliberately trying to appeal to a huge audience. It's got a very specific, almost kind of ugly art style because it's really trying to get this like mutant, uh, almost like cyborg sort of aesthetic to it. And the, the article that I was talking about is an IGN piece that went up just, uh, it actually says dated today, but I think went up yesterday. Uh, Biomutant, here's why the developers have been quiet for so long. And in it, basically, uh, it's a 20, they talk about how the team is basically barely 20 people. So it's a very small team. Um, Any game is going to ship with smaller bugs, but I'm talking about bugs that are truly disruptive to this game's experience. We don't want to ship with that. I think that's what caused us to just wait until we were ready to do it. So obviously they're saying all the right things about how they didn't want to crunch. They really wanted to uh, tidy up the product. They didn't want to, they didn't want to basically sabotage it by pushing it out the door before it was ready. So. Yeah, so fun. yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It, it looks it looks different and uh, definitely one worth keeping an eye on for sure. I just can't believe it's got a date. It's, it's one of those games. I wasn't expecting to see this till really late in the year, uh, just just because of the silence. Which it hasn't been one of those things where I'm like, oh god, it's cancelled. It was all, it, like they've they said for so long, yeah, it is coming. We're just working on it, but to finally have a date on it, it's just kind of it, it's yeah. just cool. They haven't announced. They didn't announce a next gen version. Of oh yeah, that that is that is a caveat. They did mention that this 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 release date is for PS4 and Xbox One, and they were just kind of candid. Yeah, they were just kind of candid about it. They're basically saying like when we were developing the game, we were leading it on last gen. Uh, you know, they they kind of left the door open to probably scale up, but they said it's easier to scale up and scale down. We don't want to just release it for next gen, which 
for the life of the game, this project wasn't. So it's kind of like they're just being honest and saying, yeah, we know we're going to disappoint people by not having a PS5 version or whatever, but um, they still have a PC version, obviously. And they're, I think they, they do mention how it's easier to scale up. So they're kind of leaving the door open for a, for a next-gen version eventually. I'm sure there'll be like next-gen upgrades down the line for this game if it does well. But they're just taking it. Obviously, like I said, 20-person team. They don't want to bite off more than they can chew and have sure. all these different configurations releasing out. So I just think that this is a... Uh, it's just it's just an int- something about this game just inherently intrigues me. It's just interesting. It's different. It doesn't look like other games that are coming out. So yeah, May twenty fifth this year is the slated date. A few other little smaller topics uh, from this week. This one's actually came out pretty recently that I think is pretty striking. Um, some sales updates from Koei Tecmo, uh, basically talking about a lot of their games that released last year and where they have been standing in uh, sales metrics. With the highlights being that it was led by Hyrule Warriors Age of Calamity selling three and a half million copies. Neo 2 shipments surpassed 1.4 million. And Atelier Ryza 2 at 220,000. Though, of course, this was before the worldwide release of Ryza 2. Uh, that's worth noting that the Hyrule Warriors Age of Calamity numbers there, that does make it the best selling Warriors or Muzo type game. Zelda, yep, it's it's all about the IP, right? <laughs> that Nintendo yeah, magic. Um, but like, j- just personally, I don't think I like Warriors games that much. But <laughs> I, I don't. don't. I, I played a little bit of Age of Calamity at home during the holidays with my brother, and I'm just like, yeah, this game is just not for me. That's fine, but it's just like yeah. it's just not my thing. I, I just I, I, I want to play it, but I can't drink. I, I'm just. I just wanna. I wanna keep holding out for Age of Calamity because, like, on the off chance that there's gonna be like a, a Switch Pro, Pro, Pro. yeah, like because it doesn't perform well on Switch. Yeah, man. I, if I if I want to play that, I want my first time with it to be like, the best it could be. I guess. Mm-hmm. Neo obviously is exclusive to PS4. Yeah, and the there's a PS5 PC version coming out, so that'll certainly get a boost as well. Ooh. This upcoming week, right? Like yeah, uh, the fifth, fifth, yeah. I'm, I'm and excited. I'll just, I'll, I'll just, I'll just throw this in the conversation because it's a very similar story beat. Um, we have an update from Marvelous, who published uh, Sakana of Rice and Ruin alongside Exceed in the states. That that game has sold eight hundred and fifty. Sorry, shipped eight hundred and fifty thousand units. Which for that That's game, insane. yeah. That what what is the development team of Edelweiss? Like two or three people. Yeah. Uh, two or three. It's like two key staff, and then obviously a few, a handful of like art contributors and whatever, like the local, like the the the, the more logistic side of things. But the actual key development team is basically two people. I'll just be so happy if this thing. Uh, it seems like it all should hit a million copies. That would That's just awesome. be what a stamp of like success for that. Yeah, it seems like it's only a matter of time. The first Atelier Ryza, I believe, hit five hundred thousand worldwide so this one is already halfway there before Somewhere. the before the worldwide release yep. um and the, usually obviously these games usually sell more outside of japan than in japan just based on volume obviously so it'll be interesting to see where it lands sequels don't usually sell as much as the original game but maybe if people think they can just start with rise of two rather than playing rise of one maybe it'll be it also it also helps that um there's a ps5 version yeah. 
people looking for a JRPG to play under PS5s go up. Yeah, they might just take the take bite the bullet, take the jump. Yeah. So just just to calibrate a little bit, um, Ryza sold 150,000 copies. Ryza won this is in its first week in Japan, and eventually, middle of last year, hit 420,000, which is what was the high watermark for the series. So I don't know. Did, I don't know it, where it I ended thought up it hit, at, though. I thought it hit five hundred thousand at some point. I might be wrong. Check. Well, that, the, 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 this four hundred twenty thousand was as of April last year, so easily so could it probably happen. has. Yeah, yeah. That was just, that was just the um, benchmark because that was what that was. I'd imagine the, that if it wasn't already at five hundred thousand um, before, like the lead up to Rise of Two in the West and in Japan. It probably reached it then because they've really been pushing. Like they had the reprint of the Switch physical copy that I kept missing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. As of the, as of August last year, Rise of One hit five hundred half a million. So very cool. All right, we also got just a few little gameplay trailers and footage from some upcoming games, and this one's coming out actually like next week. I don't know if anyone's excited for this except potentially george uh yeah. we got we got a trailer for werewolf the apocalypse Earthblood, and like this is the sort of thing where normally i don't know i'm i'm biased against this game like i i there's something about this game that i there's something about this game that i'm just like absolutely i'm i have negative interest in this like normally before we do these podcasts i try to at least watch through these i didn't watch this i'm gonna i'm gonna, I'm gonna poke the I'm gonna through it, it now. It, it looks. I don't know how. I don't know how to describe this. Like cleverly, it looks like a PS3 era game. Like not visually, but just like how it plays and runs and the UI and it. the camera. It reminds me of Rogue Warrior, like with the the just like, oh, PS2 era game. Maybe. <laughs> I, <laughs> with something like this, I think I'm I'm going into it with no expectation, so I'm not disappointed so like if it turns out to be like the best game ever which it won't be um then i'll just come here and be like whoa guys we're all wrong we're all whoa, egg on, whoa, egg on our faces yeah, yeah like it's actually game of the year <laughs> anyway since, since i kind of messed up like this is a gameplay trailer that was published uh like just under a week ago or i guess on tuesday so five days ago and the game's coming out on the fourth so next thursday so basically, they're just the, the final push in marketing of this game before it releases next week. So PC players are torn. It's either Werewolf the Apocalypse Earth Blood or Neo 2. It's going to be tough. Hmm. Hmm. I wonder I which know, one what it's worth. Well, for what it's worth, this Werewolf game is not on Steam. Oh, is it Epic Game Store? Yep. <laughs> oh, even better then. Like, if one of you plays this, <laughs> if one of you plays this and thinks it's actually like really good, Please come in here and like substantiate yourself. Like I don't know. <laughs> I, I think it's clear that none like, of us have like high hopes for this. I mean, our, I, I our, like looking at these games, these sorts of games, like hoping to find a diamond in the rough. But sometimes that just means you find rough. Okay, so, so this is like a, technically our first Tetracast, modern Tetracast episode on YouTube. YouTubers or YouTube people, <laughs> let us know. Werewolf Apocalypse Earth Blood. Let us know. We'll read it. But. Yeah, give us your your five hundred word essays on why this game is amazing. Next week, I just can't build up any enthusiasm for it for whatever reason. Just nothing about it compels me. Which I wish it was otherwise, but I'm not going to feign the interest. You know, you know. Uh, sorry, I feel bad for you. Sorry, Cyanide. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, 
We also got another thing that's coming out next week, uh, which is Haven, which had already released on Steam and anywhere else, or was it just Steam? Uh, Steam, PS5, and Xbox. Yeah, that's right. All right, so so next week it is releasing for PS4, Switch, and Epic Game Store. So Josh covered yep. this about a month back, you know, had some criticisms, had some good things to say about it. So kind of an interesting indie-type game. With yeah, some... Kind of try to play someone's uh, special, uh, if you can. It's uh, it's best enjoyed that way, I think. Yep. So it'll, it'll, be, it'll be interesting to see how well this does on Switch, because sometimes these sorts of games, these little smaller-scale uh, clever, clear ideas titles seem to like balloon out on there if they find a good audience. So it'll be interesting yeah, to see if it's on Switch. Well, yeah, I have a, I'm trying to think. Yeah, it'll be probably more accessible on Switch because you you, you can do a split Joy-Con configuration with it because you only mm-hmm. you only really need one half of each con- of the controller to control each person in combat. So it, I'm sure I'm sure that they have to support that. Or so yeah, yeah. It'll be interesting to see how well it does on that platform. All I hope is like it runs well. Hopefully it runs well on Switch. We also got some information about some online games uh, that are coming out. They're, first of all, so this is going to be kind of a, a hodgepodge of topics. First of all, the published topic is that the MMORPG, it's an isometric MMORPG, Magic Legends, is entering into PC open beta in March. So this is a game that I think is kind of interesting just because I, I think the setting is... From an out, I don't know much about magic, so I don't like have the draw where I see things that I recognize from that world or that setting. But I think from an outsider's perspective, I think it looks cool and interesting. And the idea of having like uh, an isometric MMO styled game, I think, is kind of interesting. So to be clear, this is one of those this is one of those games where it was sort of like originally called or billed as an MMORPG, but now it's just sort of called like an online isometric diablo that you can play with friends so it's like yeah th- yeah you kind of have that weird like destiny style game now hub based right or or you could even go further back further and say diablo based where they tr- they're trying to pull these sorts of features from this is mmo like but this is diablo like but this is destiny like and what do we call the product well whichever one you like best i suppose <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but so it, I don't know, it, it doesn't look like a it doesn't look like a traditional MMO like World of Warcraft or Final Fantasy fourteen. It, it looks more like a Diablo with with magic characters and and dressing. Oh, this, okay. The, I, was, I was like, this stuff sounds familiar. This is that game that has like a monetization model that's nightmarish. Is oh, it? I don't remember. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so this is the game. Uh, the, a while back, uh, they they laid out their their monetization model. So I'll get an excerpt for this. This from their, for this from their own new, uh, story. Uh, booster packs have been a staple of the Magic the Gathering card game for over 26 years as a way to build library cards, blah, blah, blah. Magic Legends will also be offering booster packs as a way to collect spells and collect shards of spells in order to expand and level your spell library. If you choose to purchase these booster packs, there are several other types of items. You have a chance to unlock an addition to spells. In addition the classes to the classes that are included in the game for free, They'll be selling themed Planeswalker classes that are, give you more class options to choose from when constructing your loadouts. And, huh. then, and then they're also adding a battle pass system. And then lastly, you'll be offering a, a variety of convenience items at launch, like XP boost, deck slots, and other items that assist you with leveling. So I don't, I don't know if I'm a boiled frog, but it, like cosmetics or even like convenience items I'm fine with in a battle pass, but spells and stuff? No, you're just deflated. Well, I don't know. Like, that's yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My, my, 
yeah, this is the, this is like uh, the, the, a, lot, a lot of this monetization is you know just like the card game, like right, booster pack, irrelevant. Yeah, it's to make it better. Yeah, so I was like, Magic Legends, is that the upcoming? It's like, yeah, that's right, it was. Just a brief history. This game was originally announced at the Game Awards 2019, so more than a year ago. And I guess spent all last year just, you know, obviously pandemic year, but just kind of working up towards the beta, which is in March. So. I don't know, good luck trying to adopt the card games monetization model or similar thing to an isometric online game, I guess. I don't know. That's... Uh. That's that's you know that's the way I guess. Well, we'll see how many. People well, how how, how do games like Path of Exile monetize? Because um, you know that's cosmetic and, and like an inv- and all like cosmetic, inventory, like, okay. uh, like cosmetic and like storage inventory slots, like mm. like, like like put things like in for storage, bigger, bigger pouches, right? Yeah, essentially, like like and a, that's, and that's how like Overwatch does it in Guild Wars and Fantasy Star. Like, yeah, that, I, I, I feel like that's like, so prevalent nowadays that you can't even really like turn yeah, away from like, it. Yeah, people have been very like cautious of like monetizing monetizing around like gameplay related stuff. It's just mainly yeah. cosmetics or like and can in the- yeah, and you can you can go too far with convenience as well. But I feel like it's been a while since I played a game where you absolutely feel hamstrung, like from a I can't play this game because my inventory limit's only ten as a free to play player or something like that. I feel like mm-hmm. most games, at least I've played, have avoided a big like you're expected to buy this thing as a convenience item because otherwise there's no way you can actually really enjoy this game. Well, I uh, mean, PSO2, you probably want to get a few inventory upgrades. Yeah, that's that's that would be the closest. I think you start out at like 80, but then you can get up to 150. You start, or out, like at that. Fi- you start out at 50 and you can buy inventory upgrades of 10 each. They're not too oh. bad. I think if you... Uh, if you're subscribe subscribe to Game Pass Ultimate, you can actually uh, redeem it on either the Windows Store version or the Xbox version to get like arts cash. That I think you can exchange for it. Something, something. Well, yeah, to, to, to try to tie this back into Legends, it seems like cosmetics we're all pretty much okay with. Convenience depends how it's implemented. Gameplay systems uh, that's a hard sell. Yeah, so. Oh man. I don't know, man. Well, this is free to play, so maybe I'll uh, download it in March and see how bad it is. You've, you've deflated my interest, which was already kind of like cursory in the first place, but now you're kind of like, oh. I'm sorry. Uh, I, other- I remember stuff. Sorry. <laughs> well, no, I'm glad you brought it up. Some of the other games that like similar news stories, I'll just kind of rattle them off and see if we're interested in talking about them. Uh, old School RuneScape OSRS. Let's is- go. Hell yeah. <laughs> is launching for Steam. Uh, at the end of next month, February 24th. INGF. <laughs> so basically I, you'll have, so that's a, in case you haven't been following, RuneScape as it currently is, so modern RuneScape, as much as that term means something, is already on Steam. But this will be old school RuneScape coming to Steam by this year. So you'll, ha- you'll be able to play two, two versions of it. So, so even think- then, old school RuneScape is still, in my mind, new RuneScape because I played ancient school RuneScape where it was like... Yeah. I remember when you had to like when the when the decision was like RuneScape versus RuneScape two, but until RuneScape two just became RuneScape, but and like old school RuneScape was not this old school RuneScape. It's just and modern RuneScape is RuneScape three. It's weird. Yeah, I, the, the, this isn't the RuneScape I still remember, man. I'm remembering like uh, there, there was like a, a like a wilderness area and, and like rune armor was like purple and there's like PvP everywhere. That's the RuneScape that I remember, which is like. 
one of the very first versions of it for this game. Some other online uh, focus games. Uh, the new Elder Scrolls Online expansion is coming out in June. This is Elder Scrolls Online Blackwood. They call like they call these expansions, but it feels like they're more like chapters. Like they they have a little bit uh, more metered release when it comes to like the typical two year schedule that we see from like World of Warcraft or Final Fantasy fourteen. So I, I I don't think any of us here play Elder Scrolls Online to really talk about like what the scope of these things are, but still seems like it's going strong, releasing yet another uh, package for this year. So coming out this month, or sorry, not sorry, not this month, this summer in June. Well, it's how how Bethesda like structures these updates is it actually formats it like 2021 is the Gate of Oblivion event, and that starts like in March with the existing game. Like you start this event in the storyline there, and then in the summer you have to buy the expansion to continue it. And they've actually done that like the last three years. The chronology is like it's like these these events are like set 800 years before the Oblivion game came out. Oh yeah, this one is. Yeah, yeah. Even on the thumbnail for the trailer, it says the Elder the Elder Scrolls Online Blackwood parts of the gates of Oblivion. So from from what I have heard, people who are really into like Elder Scrolls and the lore and the story. Like, I know Elder Scrolls Online had a rocky start, but it seems like these updates now have been pretty solid. And, you know, for that for that player base who's into these online games to have, know you're getting new storylines every year. I mean, you have to buy a, an expansion every year, I guess. But Well, it is a buy to play content. model, so there is, there is no sub. So it's, this is well, kind of like... It's optional sub, right, I think. In my, in my mind, like, uh, like, Elder Scrolls Online people are like in that comfy period like ff11 players like there's content they enjoy the content they have there seems to be always new content coming for them and it's like we've been mm-hmm. playing this for a while and we're, we're just we're comfortable wherever we are because now we have, it's stabilized and the content we've been uh, keep on getting is like really good for us mm-hmm. it's cool one of those I games that play. i would be interested in if i didn't have like if, if i wasn't looking uphill at 200 hours of stuff though i guess they do try to make it so that every packaged update is like a good starting point unlike final fantasy 14 where it's like a continuous contiguous story yeah you're, you're supposed to be able to start with any update like i want to start with the with the skyrim one which is Greymore. you can do that or i want to start with the morrowind one which i think was just called morrowind you can do that which i think so. you might think that might be inherently less interesting but i think that's probably mechanically more challenging where you got to be like how do we make how do we make it so that a person with 30 hours on their account has it as good of an experience as a person with 3,000 going into this expansion? I feel like that's yeah. got to be like a major task to try to balance. Yeah, meanwhile, FF14, whenever its next expansion comes out, it's like, all right, hopefully the people have spent like 300 hours to make it up to this point. Let's go. And then there was uh, one more for Blade and Soul. What's the subtitle? Blade and Soul mm-hmm. Revolution opens pre-registrations for its global release. This, so I don't know anything a- about this. Is this an actual MMO on PC? It's or? a mobile MMO. Because okay. I'm thinking it's like Revolution. It's like Lineage Revolution. And that was yeah, like, it's just like Lineage Revolution. Right. So Same, same publisher. I, I, I only know the Blade and Soul series by name, and this is the mobile MMO, which it was announced quite a while ago, I think like 2017. And then it's been out in like Korea and I think Japan and other Asian countries, but this is the global release. And what's actually sort of surprising is that the global release is for this game more than 130 countries. So it's like literally global. Oh, yeah, it's a lot. Uh, 
We seem to have people people who follow us on Twitter. We seem to have a contingent of people who really keep on top of these like Korean MMO type games, and have maybe been looking forward to this. Hey man, so, I, we'll see. When I was younger, okay, I played all, yeah. all the the darkest uh, Korean MMOs, uh, Atlantic Online, Cabal Online. It's not oh, an yeah. MMO. Guns, the duel. <laughs> what, a, what a game! I think that covers it for that though that style of news post. All these online games that are kind of trying to launch or kick off in this year. So the last bit of news here is the uh, something that Josh wanted to talk about about uh, RGG Studios head Toshishiro Nagoshi. So I'll let you uh, yeah. introduce this topic. Yeah, uh, basically, you know the the Yakuza series general director Toshihiro Nagoshi. Um, there's a big, big uh, restructure down at uh, Sega. Uh, up until this point, it was I forgot how long ago he was uh, promoted to CCO, the chief creative officer. But I want to say it was at least a year and a half ago, if not a little bit more. But it, it was a short-lived position for him. Uh, he stepped down as uh, Sega CCO, and he's just uh, now serving as a creative director. And this, uh, you know, this comes to effect April first, uh, as with mo- most of like uh, corporal shifts and big. Uh, management restructures uh, over there. Um, I think this is ultimately a smart decision. Uh, it was always, I don't know if it really worked out uh, to have negotiating that position because a lot of uh, you know, Japanese business culture is, hey, um, you know, the, the, this person that really likes making video games, it's like, it's really making us great, great results. We're going to promote him up as like a general, like a big manager overseer of this. And it's like, maybe if that person just wants to like, you know, Make video games is really good at it, you know. And uh, uh, Brian, you told me there was a saying that you had the, the other day when we were talking about this. What was that? So I'm so in my day job, I'm an engineer, and there's always kind of like this this pervading thought where you should stop trying to promote good engineers into bad managers. And there's there's two kind of ways to interpret that saying. First of all, it's basically saying that. And you can't always treat every role in a company, especially one that's in a creative business, like creating video games, as like a tiered ladder where you have to this a person that's in a creative position like Ngoshi, if he does well at his job, we must then promote him to a CCO, which is more of a, you know, administrative position, I I would presume, where he just might not be his talent, his skill set, his passion might not be as suited for that sort of thing. Um, also just the skill set required for those two roles is is quite different. So that might be me trying to draw an analog to something that I know less about, obviously, my day job versus working directly in the industry in a high position. But I can kind of see the understanding of where, yes, he, in a way you could read this as being he's being demoted. I feel like it's more that he's being put in a position that he that he's better he's suited for. And this is going to help the company. Is, Go ahead. All I care about is, does this new position mean that he's in a better position to make more Super Monkey Ball? Yes. Ooh. The answer is Ooh. probably honestly yes. Yeah, probably honestly yeah. There is um go for it. There is a wider uh story here that is that we're not really the best site for this, but basically Sega and Sega Sammy is kind of undergoing a more widespread uh company restructure. They're kind of separating their console PC and their pachinko businesses uh and I can't really I'll just be honest, I can't speak to the details of what the ramifications of this are, what the decision making behind it is. But basically, Negoshi stepping down is probably like the key, one of the key uh, fallout from a wider, more global restructuring of the company in general. 
Yeah, and it's not just him. You know, there's a lot of people in Se- higher up in Sega that's like getting probably either shifted to new positions or like going getting promoted. And that's not just him. There's a like, whole lot uh, of other- like like Sonic's voice actor. <laughs> like Sonic's voice actor. <laughs> uh, but also, yeah. um, so like the CEO of Sega, Sammy, I believe he's like 80 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and he he he's been he's from he actually comes from like the amusement and casino side of things. So he is not into like the gaming stuff as much. Obviously, he's the CEO, but that's not where he came from. And there's I again, we're not the best site for this. I don't know the details, but I know like over time, it seems like he's slowly giving more and more uh, power to his grandson. Uh, his grandson's like forty something, um, who is much more in tune with like modern gaming. And if that's the case, that sort of makes sense. It's like, we don't need uh, Nagoshi to be in this advisory role, like, because the grandson is more already in tune with that. So, like, let Nagoshi do what he does best. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know if that's, like, a hardline plan of, like, when is his grandson ever actually going to take over as CEO, but it seems like that's sort of where they're leaning. And it's like, it's like also, like, adapting to the times, because part of this, I imagine, part of this decision to, like, you know, ongoing restructures is obviously the the pandemic is still an ongoing thing. It's probably still going to be an ongoing thing throughout the year, and it still continues to impact the Japanese arcade business. Likely, you know, the, the it's not it's still not going to be an easy year for Japanese arcades. It was already not easy before the pandemic, but continuing to, to it's it's going to be it's going to be rough, and it's going to be interesting to see how the Japanese arcades develop. And what state they're going to be in by the end of this year? Because I haven't been to round one in over a year, and I'm I'm having withdrawals. Yeah, man, it's it's tough, but you know, just yeah. to put some names to this, uh, the uh, the founder of Sammy Corporation is Hajime Satomi. He's seventy eight years old, um, and then his son Haruki Satomi is also involved in the executive structure of Sega and Sega Sammy. I thought it was his grandson, but I might be wrong. Uh, the Sega, the Sega Retro list is him as his son. Oh, so I must have been wrong there. So, oops. Yeah, so I'm sorry, but yeah, I mean, it's just it's just an interesting thing to to keep note of, and obviously, um, games where where Negoshi will be involved will still continue to come out. I'm very excited to see where well, what they do next, what he does next. Uh, they're they're on a roll with both of the Yakuza games and just Sega games in general. I've been pretty damn good lately. Yeah, outside of Capcom, they've had a strong uh, last couple of years. Yeah, and that was the last topic that I had uh, earmarked. Uh, I guess do, do we want to throw an oblig- obligatory sentence about stonks? <laughs> Uh, things happen that the stock market is wild, <laughs> but like, you got you get people who have listened to this. You probably know it's up. Like it's, it goes all over the internet. Um, stay safe. You know, if you're if you're, if you're participating, uh, just uh, you know, be cautious. Be be. I, I, I'm gonna say one thing. I feel like this is fairly self-explanatory. No financial advice, but for love of God, don't invest anything that you're not prepared to lose. Right, the, 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 that's sound advice for anything that you do in life. So you know, the, the, be, have a good head on your shoulders. You know, uh, whatever you. I, I, I'm just enjoying witnessing this from afar. I, I like of, the memes. I like the re- the resurgence of uh, like the solidarity. 
is fun to see. I'll say that. Yeah. The solidarity is fun to see. Yes. So like I said, the plan is to put this on YouTube. So hopefully some of you have listened to us there. Uh, let us know what you think. Uh, it's just trying to have a, just another avenue where we, we've got access to this YouTube channel that is admittedly not used very often. So might as well put these up here. We used to at one point. Uh, obviously, you can also listen to us on Spotify or Google Podcasts or on the site itself. Speaking of the site itself, you can go to rpgsite.net to read all the features that we talked about and all the reviews from Josh, George, and James. You can hit the link at the top to go to our Discord to talk about Monster Hunter and Princess Connect and whatever else you feel like. Uh, you can also visit us on Facebook or Instagram, if you'd like, or Twitter, where we'll share our you know anniversaries of, of game birthdays, especially in the RPG space, as well as all of our um, links to all of our news posts. And we will be back next week with another episode of the TetraCast. So thanks for listening. Take care, stay safe, and we'll see you next time. Bye, guys. Bye. Later.